The wall is falling apart on me. <laughs> yeah, I know. My homeboy Blake, he's from Brooklyn. He's fresh, so we just put him down the crew, you know what I'm saying? Plus, he got a lot of experience as far as the lines. He used to rock lines. Well, I'm the cool Caucasian of the rap and persuasion. Oh, I got a funky rhyme for any occasion. This is my mode of communication, depending on crowd participation. Really don't need no invitation, just a token for transportation. Some get high for stimulation, and the best graffiti riders in the whole damn nation. Yes, yes. It's about that time again. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Houseless Podcast. My name is Peter Agostin. I'm the host and the producer of the show. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We have an extremely special show today because I'm ringing in the 75th episode of the podcast. Yes, 75 episodes of this show. And I couldn't do it without y'all, the listeners, as well as CJ Stewart, who edits and engineers these shows with me. So... Let's get into this one. This is a particularly special episode for me. This is a guy I've been fascinated with for a long time and uh, who I've known for a little bit, but we sat and had a great, long-form, candid conversation like what we usually do here on The House List. If this is your first time listening, then you're in for a big treat. Uh, If you're a repeated listener, then you're also in for a big treat. I also want to take a quick sec to shout out the people that have been writing in i've been getting some emails in various forms some people hit me up on the soundcloud page some cats hit me up on instagram even some one wrote to me on discogs so people that know me from different places or whatever have been listening to the podcast and uh it means a lot thank you so much for doing it and for checking it out i already said that but i just you know 75 it's a lot of hard work and we got here together as a crew no matter where you are in the world, and you peep this out. So big up to y'all on the show today. Lord Scotch, Keo from the X-Men, Scotch79. There's a lot of monikers that, that come with this particular individual. Um, he's a very philosophical guy. He's a very candid, uh, revealing dude, a New Yorker, a native New Yorker, a Brooklyn Knight, um, a famed... Graffiti writer, artist, and uh, what some would probably say the, I mean, this has been thrown around a lot in little circles, the journalists and hip hop heads over the years. The original white rapper, the first white rapper is what some people have tagged on to our guests on today's show. So, and we kind of get into that. Now, let me say a little bit of something about that little clip that we, I played at the very beginning of the show. That's from a documentary, an amazing documentary that you should seek out and find. Uh, there's a bit of it on YouTube called uh, The Writing on the Wall. That was done in 1984. So that bit, that's, that's our guest. That's Lord Scotch, Blake, as, uh, as referred to in that clip. Now, that was 1984. To give you a little frame of reference. So depending on when you were born, there's something. And that's Newark, New Jersey, where that was. And you can see the video. It's actually pretty cool. It's very cool. It's a great uh, document of time. Um, and I, I had to ask him, Keo, I had to ask him where exactly it was. Next to Bamberger's department store, downtown off Market Street, there was a d- uh, demolished excavation site where they would paint. 
So shout out to all my people from Newark, all my folks from New Jersey. Uh, shout out to my friend Sean. Uh, yes. Anyway, so let's keep it moving because, uh, you know, I'm excited. And it's a long conversation, too, so I don't want to go too long, but it is what it is. Take your time. You don't have to listen to the whole thing all at once. You know what I'm saying? You can break it up or save it for that long road trip or that flight, international flight, because it's a, it's a vivid tale that we get into. So 1984, this dude is rhyming in 1984. What, let's see what, what rap records came out in 1984. Run DMC's first album, their self-titled debut, that came out in 1984. Now, License to Ill, of course, everyone knows this album from the Beastie Boys. Incredible group, uh, amazing musicians, pioneers, if you will. That's 86. So, and it's still, you know, years from third base which is a group that we talk about. We talk about both, and we talk about a bunch of shit, actually. And, um, but, uh, by far, our guest, uh, you know, was influential in the creation of Third Base, the group that many love and, and remember in the, in, the, uh, in the history books of hip-hop. But there's an interesting, you know, side tie-in to our guest and Third Base, because I actually was introduced to his name, I suppose, if you will, and his work through MF Doom. Now, some of you guys might know, you know, Lord Scotch laid out, designed uh, Operation Doomsday for Fond du Lhm Records. You know, the, the incredible, amazing, classic album from MF Doom, the debut album. The, the, it set the whole tone. He also would then lay out Special Herbs, Volume 1 on Female Fun Records, which I put out. He did the other Special Herbs I put out as well, three. Um, so, as well as relaying out Black Bastards when that finally came out, both versions. So, okay. So, that's something. For all the for the Doom fans and heads, there's some real context there. And we, we kind of get right into that. He did some other great records around that, too. Around Monster Island Czars, MF Grimm's incredible... Uh, album Downfall of E Bliss and uh, Rodan, and um, later would do work for Loud Records. Mob Deep's Murder Music comes to mind. But this is like, it's not just a story about rap, a story about releases. It's just, uh, you know, it's a New York story. It's a Brooklyn story. It's like a hustler's tale. It's a story of almost like a redemption in a way. This is a guy that, that, um, spent a little time in jail he made some mistakes in his life he he's a, a true artist um and uh has had a hell of a journey now these are the kind of people that i always want to talk to on this show that's why i really started this um and i'm not tripping about whether someone has an album to promote or anything new or current i mean you it, by now you probably get that because if you go back to any of the episodes You'll see a lot of people that they're folks that I've come across in my life or I've worked with in the past. They're not necessarily promoting something new. It's not like some other contemporary shows where it is what it is, you know, and that's part of it. And I get that press cycle, you know what I'm saying? And that's a, that's important. It serves its purpose. But I will say this though, if this is your first time hearing of this guy, then there's a couple of ways. You should go to his website, keoart, K-E-O art.com. Or even his Instagram, if you guys are on Instagram and you're not hip to him and his work, his painting, full trains. He's also definitely an extremely knowledgeable historian, almost, if, uh, dare I say, of, of graffiti culture. It's painted all over. 
And uh, we get into that in the conversation too. It's fascinating stuff. I could have talked about that stuff for, for hours on its own because uh, I wanted to hear the stories. Um, but yeah, check him out on Instagram. Keo underscore X-Men. So do that on this incredible 75th episode of the Houseless Podcast. I also want to shout out uh, Controller7 for helping me with that the audio clip at the beginning of the show. So shouts to Tommy, Controller7, incredible producer. Um, and what else? What else? Let's Should we just get into this thing finally? Listen, if this is your first time tuning in, um, please subscribe on wherever you listen to your podcast. iTunes, SoundCloud. If you have a SoundCloud account, whether you got one follower or, you know, 35,000 or whatever, hit that re- repost button if you're feeling it. If this is something that you you engage with, then share it with somebody. I'm also at Twitter, at HousewithPod. So, you know, retweet it. That's how we kind of get these out. And that's super, I get super excited when I see someone like it enough that they want to share it. So, yes. Um, how, what, how else can I set this thing up? We should just let the conversation do the speaking, do the talking, rather. And you're in for a treat. Shout out to all the graph writers all over the world if you're listening specifically for that because there's some great tales. And uh, if anything comes to mind, if anything get, you trigger any stories in your own mind just, and you listen to it on the SoundCloud page, just put a comment in there. It's on. It's going to be on YouTube as well. I, I upload uh, with my homie Ben. We put up the all the episodes on YouTube as well. So let's get into this thing. The Houseless Podcast, episode 75, Lord Scotch, Scotch 79, Keo, uh, who also, one last little tidbit, you see the new kind of hand style uh, logo that was done by him. So shouts to him and good looking out y'all for tuning in. This is a great one. Check it out and enjoy. Peace. I think the first time I was really conscious, I guess, of your work was um pretty later like you'd already been very active as a as a visual artist as a painter for for years but it was really by way of um the stuff with kmd and mf doom and now um the fucked up thing too is that because my records are like in total state of disarray i i wanted to be able to this like the one time in my life besides maybe if i ever sit down with with Doom is because he mailed me this thing is this fucking the cover the original cover of or the original frame of, of the Special Herbs 1 which was mm. which I couldn't find unfortunately but I know that you know what I'm talking about um, and just because it was uh, sure. the one without the teeth and stuff sure. so this is because of the fact that um, you're on here and this was a uh canvas that Doom had hand painted and I had to scan and add the text at the bottom. Right. So this would be this. Now this wasn't the first art thing that you guys did either. No. Right. No, no, no. Because we started with Operation Doomsday and then we went chronologically backwards to uh, recreating the KMD you know famous Black Bastards artwork that was lost the original right so this so black bastards obviously came up when people finally got like the commercial version of it um that was already a few years after operation doomsday 
and uh, that this like this product I think came out. Yeah, mistaken. I think right after Doomsday, we began working on MF Grimm's album, a Monster Island Czar's album. Right. So we did a whole bunch of there was uh, Rodan's. Um, solo project at at this time you know doom and i were cranking them out yeah because it was like i guess the height of both when he was doing metal face records right right and then grim was forging ahead with day by day too because i think some of those records some came out here and some came out on either label i think to a certain extent maybe it's been a second since i really thought about like the Rodan, the Rodan project, and you know Monster Island Czars, of course, too. Which at the at the time, like post, I guess, uh, and this is just from my vantage point. Obviously, I could be somewhat inaccurate in thinking this too. But after Operation Doomsday, then a lot of this stuff like started to really come into full focus. Like the more all those those other artists that were associated with that camp of Doom and Grimm, I guess. Right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Grimm had had a long career prior to right but it was just renewed interest and um, kind of everybody feeding off of each other and there was also this you know Grimm was about to uh, turn himself in for a long bit so there right. was this kind of rush to get things out and, and yeah. you know he recorded that album uh, the downfall of Iblis in like a weekend, you know what I mean? Amazing. Before he had to go serve his time, so it was it was a real uh, creative time. But to answer your initial question, I'm really really fortunate guy in that I've had two lives. Okay. So from like 76 to 86 I existed in New York culture kind of underground I, I was a battle MC. I was a graffiti writer I even was um, popping and locking electric right. boogaloo I was up in all the clubs so on and so forth um, after that I kind of got lost and I got very off track and I wound up um, incarcerated and institutionalized and whatever. 96, when I came back to New York, is when all this, you know, really Bobito was the key because I was living in the East Village right. at the time when I came back to New York and he had a little store called Footwork. Yes. And I'd go in there and, you know, we had this connection to the past through guys like Sake and Pete Nice and MC right. Search and Curious and you know what I mean so and these guys were all probably staples in the same clubs that you were going to were sort of a part well, of that nightlife yes or, or no um, Sake who produced you know um, he was I guess third bases manager and then Searchlight you know they did Nas OC right. KMD's first album he was my original graffiti partner and kind of a mentor oh, wow. In like 79, he took me to Fort Hamilton to hit the F trains the first time. But I knew him even prior to that. We went to summer camp together. It was me, Upstate? him, and Adam Yauk. No, wow. in the woods of uh, Pennsylvania. 
Wow. It's called Camp Onus. was like a Quaker camp. Interesting. Yeah. So that's where I met those cats. And I'm talking about, you know, 70, mid-70s. Wow. Every summer I'd go for two weeks or four weeks or whatever. So you guys are like adolescents at this time, right? I mean, it's like, you know, kids, basically. Yeah. Um, well, Yauk and Saik were, um, I guess... A year or two older than I. Okay. So that's why I say he was like my mentor. Because in camp, you know, they arranged us by tents. We didn't have houses. We slept in these tents by age. Oh, interesting. So they were in the older tent, you know what I mean? And that I got to even hang around them was like... Because everybody, you know, you're in the woods of Pennsylvania. And most of these kids are you know, like rich kids or from the suburbs or from Knucklebrook, Nebraska, somewhere. I don't know. Oh, so it's not all city kids. Not, not A all lot of city kids. Right. But, you know, kids like Yauk or Sake, they they were from nicer parts right. and probably went to private school. Like Brooklyn Friends School was the connection to this Quaker camp. Okay. So um, St. Anne's, Poly Prep, Packer. I didn't really um, know kids like that or grow up with them. I grew up poor and going to public school, so this was my opportunity to um, get out of the city for the summer, but I didn't really vibe with a lot of the other kids. I gravitated towards Sake because he was already writing graffiti and because he was a basketball player. At that time, he, um, real tall kid from Flatbush, you know, Beverly Road, he uh, he was like the only white kid to start for Riverside Church at that time. Wow. Which is, you know, a famous uh, institution. Right. So it gave him a little um, more worldliness than some of these kids who I just thought were corny. You know what I mean? At the time, like, a lot of kids at um, Camp Onus, they were listening to... Not like the good Led Zepp, but like that that Dungeons and Dragons, gnomes and elf. What, what's that? You know, if there's a bustle in your hedgerow or whatever, uh-huh. these fucking right. Stairway right. to Heaven kind of songs. That was like... Right. <laughs> and to me, that was my parents' shit. Like, my sure. mother had Led Zepp, too. Right. I was on some other shit. Right. I, I didn't want to, you know, talk about the Beatles. Like, that. <laughs> right. that was... You know, when you're a kid, you want to rebel against what your parents are doing. Of course. And so, Sake knew a little bit about, you know, it wasn't hip-hop yet, but it was um, funk and disco. And, you know, break beats were out and and DJs were playing things, but, you know, there was no real hip-hop yet. I'm talking about records type so, I mean, that might be a little later, actually, come to think of it. Is this like mid-70s you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. I'm talking about um, the year we really all vibed at, at Camp Onus. Um, the number one song was Heart Barracuda. Uh-huh. So what year is that? Um, I'd have to look. I, that one I can't, is not can the forefront it. of my mind. Right. I want to say maybe 76, 75, 76. I'm and then sure. the... Um, the, the uh, the Ramones had just come out. Oh, okay. So that was the new shit, being that's on the ground with the, with the baseball bat. Right, right. You know, that's what um, Saik and Yauk were really into. And I was kind of bringing this other vibe, which 
you know, it's just my neighborhood that I grew up in, what I was exposed to and what my friends listened to and what I was drawn to was kind of almost proto-hip-hop. And But you're and, a native of Brooklyn, yes? Yeah. What? Uh, where did you grow up? Well, I, I say it doesn't exist anymore, right, right. but it, it was Gowanus. You know, it's now like very, very shishi. I can't afford to live there right. anymore. But right. at the time, it was a very different place. I can imagine. Yeah. Is it close to the water? No, no. Um, like, you know where Gowanus projects and Wyckoff projects are between Nevins and Bond? Yeah. There's one block of brownstones between two housing projects. Right, right, right. So that's where we grew up. And um, most of those brownstones were abandoned with cinder blocks in the window. Wow, right. And the ones that were occupied were mostly like rooming houses. A lot of older uh, Hispanic single men, mostly alcoholics. <laughs> like, right. You know what I mean? It wasn't what it is now. I think Ethan Hawke lives on my old block. And, wow, right. And the cat who killed himself that played the Joker. yeah. Um, he lived on the next block. Right. So it's like, you know, $4 million to get in the door if anyone's selling, which they're sure, not. they hold on to those right. spots. And if they do sell, yeah, of course, it goes to a very uh, high bidder, I would assume. Right. But in 1967, nobody wanted to live there. In fact, the city would give them to you for, you know, the, the back taxes right. if you could bring it up to code kind of like what's going on in Detroit and other places now right, you know what right, I mean they were right. they were encouraging I've heard of people who got their brownstones for one dollar because you had to right, exchange right. some currency to make this contract legal right right pardon me back yeah anyway it was a very different different time and place so like when say you get back from this camp like you know and what's so you know, growing up at, at, at that period of time, if you're what, like, you know, I know it's like, yeah, we're kind of looking at a very different era of New York City, too. Um, but, you know, you could be young and still find yourself immersed in like New York City nightlife, you know, or oh, yeah. the culture of, of, you know, the street and the music that comes out of that, too. And obviously, as a as a, you know, as a graffiti artist too, you become as a child. I would assume you be informed by what obviously what you see visually walking around. For sure. I mean, could you paint some sort of picture for me what that's like? Because I was born in '79, and I grew up in you know I've been here in New York for a long time, but I grew up in Virginia originally and stuff. So my frame of reference for that period of time in New York obviously is one that I can only read about or envision, you know, or hear stories from. But it's a it's clearly a fascinating time because. So as so many people um, bemoan in a way that doesn't ex- that doesn't totally exist anymore too. So, well, it was a pretty amazing time in New York yeah. because I'm born in '67, right? Okay, gotcha. Which, if you ask some folks, they'll tell you that was the summer of love, right? Right. You ask other folks, they say that was the long hot summer of race riots. Okay. So I guess it depends where you were. Sure. How, right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, um, between uh, Berkeley or Newark is a big fucking difference, (laughs) all perspective. So New York was a little of all of that. 
right? We're kind of an island where everyone's jammed up together, right. and um, it's where new immigrants to this country usually land, so right. all kinds of cultures. I've been to other cities, and they're kind of divided, you know, it's like, oh, uh, you cross this line, and that's the blacks on that side of the tracks. Spanish over here. This, right. you know, New York. We didn't have that um, kind of real estate. Right. Yeah. You know, you can't expand out. You can't. There's no suburbs. So it's it's an island. You can only build taller. Mm-hmm. So everybody is, whether they like it or not, we're on top of each other, and it made for a lot of. Um, battles, you know, where neighborhoods wanted to remain the same and resist uh, new immigration, and 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 there were gangs and race riots and all right. kinds of shit. So I don't remember '67, obviously. Right, sure. I was born, but my earliest memories are of, you know, it's Vietnam era, protests, everyone's like uh, some sort of a radical, mm-hmm. especially in, in my neighborhood of Brooklyn was, I guess they'd be called terrorists today, but they were all like, you know, my house was a commune with um, all kinds of uh, political refugees and freedom fighters from all over the really? world stayed there. Sure, sure. And um, what were your folks like? What did your folks do? Because I, I mean, I have some tertiary knowledge of of your brother because he's an author, but I don't know much more beyond that. So they were. It was like a. Yeah, I got tertiary knowledge of my brother too. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <laughs> my father was was a. And still is, 83 years old, uh, a painter, okay. an oil painter, huge canvases, part of the New York School of Abstract Expressionists, oh, cool. you know what I mean? So he's born in, in the Great Depression, right. uh, comes to New York, you know, he was a conscientious objector in the Korean War before it was wow. cool. <laughs> you know, right. they right. tried to draft it. They did draft him. So he was a, 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 like, I guess you call that the beatnik era if you have to give it a label. Mm-hmm. My mother was 10 years younger than he, so she was a straight hippie kid, you know. Yeah, yeah. And she's born in, in Queens. And uh, so my father was more into like the folk and the blues and the jazz and my mother was straight rock and roll you know what I mean yeah and they met in like you know the village before it was NYU'd out yeah like yeah I can imagine McDougal Street and you know uh when the folkies were like playing all the spots I guess it's like kind of almost well this might even be around the era the Bob Dylan it's probably a little bit before that I would assume right Yeah, yeah my mom used to you know Bob Dylan was like a, a shorty. Right. She she kind of talked about him like a sundula, but he was in that same circle. Interesting. And um, you know who Reverend Gary Davis is? I don't, unfortunately. Blind, uh, great, great musician and kind of um, the 
elder statesman of that little scene, which mm-hmm. was around McDougal, and, yeah. you know. So he was supposed to marry my parents because he became a reverend wow, after right. being like a real blues man. He be- became more uh, gospel music, right? right. Anyway, interesting. Yeah, so that's that's the um, you know I heard all kinds of music. We had you know uh, guys who played the the steel pans, the the drums yeah. at our house. We had you know you name it. Um, Musically, my neighborhood was totally, totally um, diverse. So when you leave the house, I mean, inside the house is one thing, but when you go outside, it's, it's, it's obviously informed by the people around you too, right? So Yeah, I mean, as a kid, you listen to what your friends listen to. Right, right. I wasn't, I wasn't any kind of a maverick or, uh-huh. or some sort of, you know, rebel. Right. Where people say, oh, you were the first white rapper. I'm like... It just kind of, I was doing what my friends did. I wanted to fit in. You right, know what right. I mean? It's not like if I came from somewhere else and said, I'm going to seek this out. And, right. You know. Well, that, that label, I feel like maybe a little, people that maybe tag that onto you, it's a little maybe possibly misguided slightly. You know, I, I mean, I, I think. I was an MC for one thing. The right. difference between an MC and a rapper is very clear to me. Sure. But, um,. It evolved from, we used to have snap battles, you know, right. where you'd be in what they call a cipher, what the nations of gods and earths call a cipher. We'd be in a circle as kids in the schoolyard, snapping on each other's clothing and, and sneakers, and we right. had little rhymes that you would spit about that. At the same time, the girls had um, double dutch rhymes. Right, right, to do in in tandem to the jump rope. Right. right. So these things kind of, um, it, it, I was already doing it. It seemed very natural when we first right. heard MC. And I don't, you know, there's this mythology that hip-hop started on this day at 7.30 p.m., in right. Cool Herc's uh, sister's party at this corner of Sedgwick and Cedar. but And maybe that's so. I wasn't in the Bronx that young. But in my neighborhood, I watched it evolve from kind of other things. Sure. It seemed like a natural, natural flow to me. So because you're hearing all kinds of music, you know, we lived on the corner of Nevin's. But the actual corner was a bodega, and Mr. Rodriguez was a salsero. He would play, you know, bongos and timbales, and not not even salsa, like boogaloo, like dirty New York salsa, you know. So you're hearing that coming in the window. My, My neighbor, so his backyard faced my backyard. He was on Bergen. Right. And... We shared, you know, just a little wooden fence between the two yards. He was a the great jazz violinist, uh, Noel Pointer. Oh, interesting. Okay. Made Fantasia and all yeah. that. So you'd hear him play electric violin. Dope. You'd hear right across the street is PS38 Schoolyard, 
and Colony South Brooklyn houses where some of the earliest DJs I ever saw would plug up their equipment. And, you know, you had all these different sounds. And then in the house, I'm hearing, you know, what my parents are playing. And there's, there's, it's a, it's a melding pot, you know what I mean? Some of my friends in the neighborhood were, were into Kiss at that time. So, yeah, I mean. And Parliament Funkadelic and right. all these sounds. So, you know, if you came from somewhere else, even even in Brooklyn, there were neighborhoods where it was like, disco sucks. Right. Rock and roll, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. But my neighborhood being downtown Brooklyn, it's like Harlem in that, we had Fulton Street, which was our 125th Street, where yep. people would come from everywhere to shop. You could walk to Park Slope or Brooklyn Heights or even walk across the bridge into Manhattan. Right, right. Right? So we were not um, totally isolated. And while it was hood, it wasn't like desolate, you know, like some parts of Brownsville, East New York, were right. so, it's just all projects. Right. And, and you're isolated from anything else sure and i mean like even in places like say you know bay ridge or bensonhurst they're isolated in a different in a very different kind of way for sure and there were neighborhoods that we knew we didn't cross those lines you couldn't go in those neighborhoods and it's funny because i'm a little white kid i probably could have gone into parts of um cobble hill and and, um carroll gardens that my friends were like, no, we can't go there. But I didn't understand. I just knew that was enemy territory, that we get chased by older kids with baseball bats. Right. And they probably weren't chasing me. Like, right. But when my friends ran, I ran. When my friends fought, I fought. And if we went into another neighborhood, it might be the other way around, where they had to defend me you know what i mean like who's this white boy nah he's cool he's with us you know what i mean and it's either uh fight or flight time right so yeah it's a very distinctive new york experience too in a way i know this happened that you could probably apply that to many different parts of the country but there's something about certain parts of new york i would assume when you grow up um where you know you're just friends and but if you apply that to a different part of the city or a different place altogether uh you know other people may look at that in a weird way, especially back then, I would assume. Well, I think it's very important right now to tell this history because it's a very um, racially divisive time right now. Yes. And I think, you know, perhaps some of the powers that be have an interest in divide and conquer and encouraging these kind of... Which, like I said, I grew up in a time of racial unrest and there was a lot of divisions and don't kid yourself it's not just down south new york is one of the most racist places in the world right um so there were gangs that were divided along racial lines you know what i mean you had the homicides were all spanish dudes and the tomahawks were all black dudes and they had beef um the schoolyard it seemed like sports was divided you know the black had the basketball court and the Puerto Ricans had the handball court, you know, right. almost like a prison yard. Right, right. So that what became later called hip-hop, I first experienced it with graffiti, which graffiti predates 
any of that musical shit by, you know, at least 10 years. Right. So it, it brought cats together. And it wasn't like a conscious political thing, like, hey, we're all going to be a rainbow tribe. No, uh-huh. it just it just naturally worked that way. The dudes from different neighborhoods and different um, ethnic backgrounds and even different um, classes would get together based on art skills. Right. And because... The train yards and layups were always at the end of the line in different, you know, you're going to Morris Park in the Bronx, you're going to Linden Plaza or New Lots in Brooklyn, you're going to Jamaica Yard in Queens. You have to get to know cats in those neighborhoods and form alliances to be able to move. And graffiti writers were some of the first cats I saw that could travel because if you belonged to, say, a gang, you couldn't really leave your block. Right, that's a very good point. You had turf, you were stuck there unless you went deep and prepared to go to war. You're walking right. onto someone else's turf. So graffiti writers were the first cats that kind of got a pass. And they were allowed to travel. Dudes would just be like, ah, oh, they, they're not gang busters. Do they're, you think that, the, that you know street dudes or gang dudes would be able to identify... Graph cats that'd be like those guys like we know that they're just going up there to paint some shit they're not they don't we don't have anything to they have nothing for us we don't need to fuck with them or whatever would do you think that was a thing a conscious thing or did you guys have yeah. to move so for stealthily sure. anyway too, for right? sure um to me you know graffiti was uh like I said. I didn't see where I fit in 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 sports. Right. I didn't see where I fit in 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 gangs. I mean, maybe if they if there had been more white kids in my neighborhood, we'd have had our own clique, but we didn't. Right. Right. You know, it was few and far between. So here was somewhere I could fit in, and I wasn't very good at you know I wasn't the best fighter, I wasn't the best dancer, I wasn't the best basketball player. But I had some art skills, and some of it probably is uh, genetic from my father, and some of it is probably, you know, just growing up around all this art supply. I think every kid draws when they're little. Of course. I I certainly think so, too. But I was never encouraged to stop. Right. Right. So I grew up in a house full of art supplies, materials, and books and paintings and you know nude models and all right. kind of, I, you know my house was was freaky deaky so but do you remember like the first time you started like actually experimenting with a can a spray of a can or was sure. that were those in the house too that, that sure. utilized well my father did carpentry to make a living so in the basement it's funny, upstairs he had his art studio with all kinds of oil paints right. and rabbit skin glue and canvases, uh-huh. but the basement was full of tools and woodworking shit and spray paint. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, um, before I ever used a can of spray paint, I was practicing on paper and with markers imitating right, right. what I saw in the streets. Right, of course. Because yeah. to me it seemed like here was something I, I could be good at. 
but it was also um, there was a bit of a mystique about it when I was a very young kid like who are these dudes you know how do they do this Um, when do they do this yeah that's a good question And, and they seem to have a certain respect so for a little kid, you know, the same reason you'd be drawn to um, superhero comic mm-hmm. books, Zorro or somebody with a fucking uh, secret identity. Right, right. The same reason, you know, 11-year-old kids l- liked Kiss or even Parliament Funkadelic because they had costumes and secret right. identities. And just like, you know, MF Doom had oh, yeah. a bunch of names and a mask. So a graffiti writer had that. Yes. You were able to take a secret identity. And I think that a lot of what became hip-hop music came out of that same sensibility. If you notice, dudes don't usually... Now it's starting to be like you could be Danny Brown. Right, use the real name. for yeah, right. decades, you had to take a name like calling yourself Flash or whatever that comes yeah. from graffiti whether yeah. Flash wants to admit that or not right. the first dudes I ever heard of DJing outdoors they were already famous graffiti writers and that's like App he wrote App Superhog um, Grandmaster Flowers wrote Flowers Dice okay okay yeah. that's all first generation Brooklyn graffiti writers from the ex-Vandals. Most of them dudes went to Erasmus High School. Okay. 1972. Flatbush. Um, Church Ave. So... Because Grandmaster Flowers, obviously, you know, some people are totally unfamiliar with him, but some people know what an impact he had in, like, pre- releasing records and stuff like that. Well, all these guys... Even, you know... I wasn't in the Bronx that right. young. I was a little older. I began to go to the Bronx. So this is secondhand information as told to me by guys like Grandmaster Kaz and cats that I know very well. Cool Herc will tell you he was a famous graffiti writer hmm. before he was ever a DJ. <laughs> right. There's photos of Cool Herc tags running on the outsides of trains in the early single hit days, you know. Wow. And... Everybody wrote cool something with the two O's were eyeballs and a hat on it or a crown. You know what I mean? That's like, that's first generation shit. Right. And these dudes, a lot of them were West Indian. So they brought this kind of sensibility of um, DIY. Mm-hmm. You know, like we don't need a radio station. We just plug up and yeah. get on the mic. And right. We don't need Studio 54. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have a white suit and cocaine and money. Right. Right. You know what I mean? You ain't even got to be 21. Let me show you how we do this. Boom. Yeah. And build out their own speakers. And when you hear it in dance hall culture, they say high powered sound. Yeah. That means they were plugging into the the power lines. Right. Up, up high. Top. Right, right. right. <laughs> so this this was done in Brooklyn at the bottom of the lampposts. Right. <laughs> so some of the first jams I saw 
I wasn't even old enough to go outside, but like I say, I lived directly across from the PS38 schoolyard. My windows in the front, my okay. bedroom, in August, we didn't have air conditioning. The windows open, you know what I mean? If they're throwing a jam, you can't sleep. Oh, yeah. Man. So uh, the first Atlantic Antic, they threw a jam afterwards, and I remember distinctly... I'm too young to go out and participate, but when they plugged up, the the street lights dimmed on the oh. block, and it's like, <laughs> nice. And then when dude cranks it up, the bass is so loud, my bed was moving. Wow, the, from the, across the street. Yeah, yeah, so I wasn't going to sleep. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just watching. Well, they used to have jams in Gowanus Projects in the actual. Um, it's like a playground sure. in yeah. the middle of the projects, and then they'd have them there. So you got competing DJs and competing jams going on even way back then, right? Mid seventies, you know. So whoever had the loudest system was going to draw the crowd, right? And I remember dudes talking about um, six foot Russian ass kickers. That was the like a Serwin Vega, right, right, right giant speakers mm -hmm. and then other dudes would build their own wooden cases that they would have to wheel out and and they would be even larger than the six foot right. Russian ass kicker <laughs> which was the biggest thing available so these mobile sound systems were already going on and you know nobody was calling it hip hop I hear a lot of people now say oh those guys were disco DJs. Right. It's so, not even that though. Talking about Pete DJ Jones or Flowers yeah. or Hollywood or Maboya. But to me, if you're playing outdoors in the park right. for free and they didn't only play disco records, you couldn't. See, if you threw a jam in PS38 schoolyard, you got to understand different crews were coming together. So if they played all, say, reggae, dudes that were in the funk and disco would get pissed off, right. right? If they played all funk and disco, you had Puerto Ricans that were... Not only did you have dudes who were into salsa and Afro-Cuban and all this kind of stuff, you had what they call outlaws. These okay. were Puerto Ricans that dressed like the Hell's Angels, wore MC boots, and they listened to strictly rock and roll, like death metal. Right, right. So, and they were gangsters. In my block, we had the, the Filthy Mad Dogs, the Floor Master Dancers. You know, they were FMDs. These dudes would show up at the, the jam deep, dressed like motorcycle gangsters and they all carried as a cane a nine iron golf club oh my god uh -huh. so if you played all one style of music and didn't make everyone happy they would shoot up the jam it gets shut down you know what I'm saying wow. so hip hop came about by these dudes finding how to seamlessly blend all of these musical genres. Right, right. So right. you could play a little Led Zeppelin in the mix. You could play a little, you know, Afro-Cuban. You could play some funk. You could play some uh, Caribbean. 
and find that breakbeat in all those records that you could keep a steady groove going. Right. But make everyone happy. So oh, people yeah. be like, oh, yeah, okay, now you're playing that good <laughs> right, shit. Right, right, right. You know? No one felt excluded because, like I said, my neighborhood is very um, mixed. Mm -hmm. Would you say that, like, in those early years of... Because of, re I'm really fascinated about that, that period of time for graffiti writers, too. Because would you say that that community, if you would call it that, was equally mixed and diverse because if you look there's the guys are seem so different from one another depending i guess what part of the maybe what part of the city they're from right because it's it's you know it's it seems seemingly on the surface it seems like a pretty like diverse thing but i know how if individualistic everyone is too right? if you're a recent new york and by recent i guess i'm talking last 20 years right. now it's hard to imagine the neighborhoods had lines you could not cross, right. right? And so it'd be a totally different flavor across one avenue. Right. Like, the style of dress, of talk, of music, of cars, of what sneakers they wore. You know, I could tell you not only what borough someone was from by how they dressed, but what neighborhood, right. you know, specifically. So at that time, if you saw... A black kid, two Puerto Ricans, and two white boys walking together. Uh -huh. You'd be like, "Yo, what y'all write?" You knew they were graffiti writers. <laughs> that was the only time you right. saw that. Later on, mid '80s, it might be uh, a dance crew. Right, right. <laughs> but you know, up until like '79, that that was strictly a graffiti thing, as I saw it. Right. And again, it was it was um, it just had to happen tactically. You couldn't go all city. You couldn't bomb all these train lines unless you knew somebody in that neighborhood. Because for me right. to walk, like I was twelve years old, going to the A yard is under Linden Plaza projects <laughs> I don't know even even today with this new softest cupcakes New York right that part of East New York is like pink houses Linden plot it's just project after project in a row for a little white boy to be going there and I'm talking two three in the morning uh -huh. suicide unheard of so I had to know somebody there. That nah, he's with me. He's cool. That could vouch for me. Right. You understand? And the same way, there were neighborhoods where black kids couldn't go mm -hmm. unless they were accompanied by someone who vouched for them, who right. was known in that neighborhood. There were neighborhoods Puerto Ricans couldn't go. It was it was sad, but it was true. And it also helped us. Um, you know, we used to rack all our spray paint. Right. We never had money to buy any of that shit. So we developed tactics whereby, like, me and my partner at the time, he wrote Cess 157, tall black kid, right? He would go into the art supply store. I would wait outside and count to 100. He would act suspicious and draw all the 
all the eyes to sure. him and actually take them to the other side uh-huh. away from the spray paint. Then I walk in and I would dress the part looking as, as preppy, as nerdy as possible. Mm-hmm. I got my portfolio, you know, like they give mm-hmm. you an art school, mm-hmm. giant black portfolio. I can stack 50 cans in there. Right? How quickly? that's the ultimate decoy though so we we understood racial profiling and we used it to our advantage you know what I mean so um, even just traveling the city if you were a salt and pepper team it would throw people off like Cats who might look to rob me or jump him, they see us together, they kind of got to pause and scratch their heads long enough for us to keep it moving. Like, right. What the hell are them dudes doing? You know what I mean? Right. So whatever neighborhood we could move. How did, how did you guys cops, think? Even the cops right. would be like, well, what are these guys about? Right. You know what I mean? So because everybody's uh, racially profiling, stereotyping, you know what I mean? this divide and conquer shit we were able to use that to our advantage and even before I got into it you see photographs the earliest cats like um, LSD Ohm and FDT 56 you know a good friend of mine Frankie Del Toro peace to him they were like first generation masters and you see photos of the two of them and you're like really those guys right one has an afro this big and one's like a long blonde haired hippie (laughs) and they're you know they're in the bronx in the train yards and so it really was uh, a unifying force and later on hip-hop music was just as much it was a new york thing right so you had black, Hispanic, a smattering of white boys, a couple Asians, you know what I mean? It looked like the inner city New York, right, same right. demographic. Now I hear people talking about, oh, well, that's black music. You know, uh, I think Eminem said it mm-hmm. recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm the worst thing since Elvis Presley to do black music so selfishly and use it right. to get myself wealthy, right? And yeah, if you go back far enough, probably all culture comes from Africa, right? The oldest bones known to man are are from the Nile River Delta, Ethiopia, somewhere, right? Right, right. So probably all music is is African at one time. But hip-hop is maybe one of the very few musics that you can name that it's really a New York thing. Like... For me to be doing hip hop was not bizarre back then. Right. Now, for somebody from another state to do hip hop, that was weird because yeah, it was like unusual. a New York thing. Right? right, right. So, in other states, you didn't have that. Like I said, um, I've been to places like Philly, they call the city of brotherly love. Well, they, that Liberty Bell got a crack right down the middle. Right. And one side, you know, north side, south side, it's like, Blacks and whites, and you don't cross that line. Mm-hmm. Boston, same way. Right, very much so. Yeah. Right. Forget about down south, uh, out west. I, L.A. was one of the most racially divided places I've ever been. Right, right. 
like all the culture, gang culture, music culture, whatever it was, it was like black, brown, white. And that was weird to me. I had never experienced that because like I said, even the most ignorant racist knuckleheads you grew up next door to each other. <laughs> right. You had to learn to like it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And even the the whitest, we used to call it uh, cousines or guidos, these uh-huh. certain neighborhoods that were predominantly Italian, which were some tough-ass white boys, right. and were not trying to allow the neighborhood to change. Mm-hmm. They were fighting integration. Right. Even there, there was always one black kid who they were like, nah, he's cool, he grew up with us. And that kid probably talked just like the rest of the cousins, dressed like mm-hmm. them, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Was he trying to be white? No. No, you can't, you know, I might could um, could have passed as, as Hispanic. <laughs> but I wasn't going to fool anyone I was black. I was just, I was trying to be part of my neighborhood yeah which is a different thing altogether there's a the color lines i guess are much more i don't know blurred is really the right way but it's not even even now i feel like it's in certain parts of the city it's such a it's a beautiful thing for it to be so mixed up like well it makes everyone stronger i don't believe that you can steal a culture you can add on to it right right I mean, if I take your song word for word and record it and don't pay you a royalty, yeah, I stole from you. Like Elvis right. Presley did to Big Mama Thornton, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hound Dog. Or famously, you know, other cats have, have knocked off Bluesmen, Muddy Waters, whatever. Uh, yeah. The Rolling Stones, you know. Sure. Even the Beatles were an Isley Brothers cover band. Right, <laughs> right. Right. But I think they paid for that Mm -hmm. use of that song. Anyway, that's one thing. So I can take your song and not give you credit. It's been done to me. That's thievery. But if I'm just adding on to music, art, culture, whatever, (laughs) it still exists for you. I didn't take it away from you. Right. If anything, you know, I made a contribution and if it was good enough, it's gonna build. What's, the whole what thing. song are you talking about? For you, you said it was done to you many times. Really? Yeah. 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 But I'm not gonna. I'm not here to go blow there. up anyone's spot because right. I never chose to record, and I had the opportunity. Right. Okay. So if I was able to give some lyrics to someone else and they used them and they changed it up and made a, a hit song and, and had a great career with it, beautiful. Right. Because, like I say, it only would have stolen from me if I were attempting to record and, and profit from it, and I wasn't. Right. So now I'm were, not doing anything. But were you writing? Lyric. Were you were you just kicking these like in a public place, like freestyling at a club type of situation or more... Like you had a book of rhymes, and someone's like, "Yo, let me keep that." And then, no, no, I'd just be, you know, battling somebody somewhere. And, gotcha. You know, sometimes you hear things and they stay in your subliminal. Sure. So later on, when you're writing, I've done it. Right. 
I'm trying to think of a couplet, something that rhymes with this, and I'm actually using something that Special K from the Treacherous Three said, and it just right. was stuck in the back of my head, like, oh, that sounds good. Right, right. And realize it later, oh, shit, I didn't even mean to bite, and I bit. Right, so. Right. That's happened many, many, I mean, countless times in hip-hop. And some of those sure. old-school tomes, you know, are, they're so good, you can't help but use them, you know, in, uh, in some way. Especially, like, Well, now it's acceptable. Yes, like, beyond acceptable, it's, like, almost a commonplace. You know? yeah, yeah, there were no covers. See, it's funny. In graffiti, I could bite a comic book. Right. Saturday morning cartoons. A cereal box, a, a laundry detergent, take the, the style from Tide or Comet or right, Ajax. Right, right. That's where we got all our shit from. Yeah. Pop, right? Right. It's pop art. Yeah. But if I emulated another graffiti writer, whoo, that was biting. Oh, yeah. So hip-hop was the same way. Dudes right. would um, flip commercials and theme songs and jingles from, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. But you could never cover someone else's song. I don't know when that became acceptable. That's one thing that I love. I think I love most about that genre of music too, because in rock and roll, covering someone's song is like a—it's a pastime. And now people have done it to the detriment of the original songwriter, obviously, mm-hmm. as we just talked about. And then some—you know—there's a whole industry of tribute and cover bands that exist to this day, thriving in America. You know, like. Just go to Long Island. Well, you know? I wasn't there. I wasn't right. alive. But I've read a lot and heard some interviews with the early blues men. Mm-hmm. And that's really where a lot of this rock and roll songs you're talking about right. began. And I don't think they appreciated it either. Because sure. you'll hear dudes sound sour like, oh, that motherfucker, he stole that song from me. And I was the... You know what I mean? Well, yeah. So... um I don't think covers were really appreciated. You don't appreciate it until you own your publishing and <laughs> and and get a royalty. And then right. it's like, yeah, cool. <laughs> Cover right. my song, please. Right, right, right. So um, in Montserrat, there was a guy named Arrow, rest in peace. Um, he died recently, actually. And he was uh, on the forefront of Calypso, okay. right? So he made a song called Feeling Hot, Hot, Hot. Mm-hmm. Now, a dude named Buster Poindexter had a huge hit with that. Right. And he wasn't getting paid. So the family, like, did their due diligence, you know what I mean? They lawyered up and... They got a piece of it. Now you hear that song in fucking uh, commercials and J- oh, it's, it's huge. Yeah, for years. Yeah, and they get a piece. Good, and they're quite happy now because not only do you get a a, a, a royalty check, it generally will make people go back and research the original. Yeah, for sure. It'll, it'll renew some interest in your. You know, like we didn't know what we had here until the British invasion sold it back to us right? <laughs> right right then once the stones become so big they interview them and they're like so who were your guitar heroes and they start naming 
American dudes that they wouldn't even play on the radio here right. because we're so racially hung up here, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in in England they were they were hip to it, so people right. went back and started researching these dudes' catalogs right. and it gave them a whole new life, just like sampling did, right? You know. So did uh, this is I want to show you this record real quick because I I I think that I've read somewhere that you not only is in a frame because this has some sentimental value to me too, but did you, you you played some role in this song? I mean, you can tell me what uh, you don't have to tell me the whole story if you don't feel like it. But I know that this you played some role in this song, "Brooklyn Queens" by Third Base. Now, before you say anything, too, um, because I worked on the White Rapper Show, right? Um, and Search, of course, was the host of the White Rapper Show. Uh, after we would hang out a little bit after we were done taping, so this is why it's framed because it's signed in. It was in the, while I was still putting out records. On my other label, you know they asked me to be a judge on that show, and I turned Sasha Jenkins Did you? down. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that would have been. You probably would have, uh, you know, been great in that. But I. So what? You didn't. You weren't feeling the idea. Um, I think reality television and those kind of things uh, always somehow in the final edit wind up like focusing on the negativity and catering to the lowest common denominator. Right. So I I didn't want to be made a fool of someone like Search who already has a uh, a visible persona and has done a lot. Right, right, right. He maybe can do that. You know what I mean? Bismarcky right. was on a show about the fat camp or something. Oh, right, right. right. Uh Flavor Flav did a uh Flavor of Love like Right. And now you meant they might edit it to make you look a fool because that's what they do, right? Well, sure. If you look at the contestants on the White Rapper show, they got. But it doesn't. It doesn't negate the records that Flavor made. The 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 videos. Those still exist, right? So me, I had never really been in the public eye like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, people talk about me when when. You know, but you got to dig deep. Like I avoided right. cameras because I was a graffiti writer. I don't have any photos of myself from back in the day because when the right. camera right. would come out, I would hide. Well, inherently, you need to protect your identity. I wanted to be Zorro, you know. Right. Which okay. is why I love Doom when he came out because he wanted to keep his face hidden. You know what I mean? And and I relate to that. Sure. So for me to go be on this show, I was like, Sasha, you're not going to make a fool out of me. And he was like, no, 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 you're going to be one of the judges. You get to clown everyone else. Right. (laughs) So anyway, back to... um, Did you write on this song? Do you remember? Not credited, no. Right, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. No, nah, we you know we can go there. We don't have to because I mean we could also. I'm there's still here's I, my thing. I love Search. He's a he's a great dude. I went to um, the high school of music and art with him in oh, 1980. Cool. Um, when he was trying to be an opera singer, wasn't he trying to be an opera singer at some point? <laughs> <laughs> I think he was going to be. Uh, what do you call the guy who sings at at the shul? Oh, uh, in Yiddish. Right. And, and no, sings in Hebrew. Uh, well, it's not. Uh, he was going to blow cantor. the shofar. Right. Yeah, a cantor. Right. He was going to have a long um, goat's horn. Uh-huh. <laughs> wow. 
Nah, I'm, I'm fucking. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Saik, who, who put that project together, as far as I'm concerned. Third base as a group. That was my first graffiti mentor. Right, right. And we go back before there was hip-hop, right? Right, right. So he went to Columbia University on a basketball scholarship. Oh, okay. Sake would have been a great, great basketball, like NBA, except he got very ill in his senior year when they would Mm -hmm. be scouting you for colleges. He had some mysterious... They had to remove his spleen. He was out for a whole year. Oh, wow. Or he would have been, you know, legendary. But even with that, he was still able to go to... You know, Columbia's not really a a basketball school, but him, him and Peter Nash whose father was a coach at Xavier in, mm-hmm. uh, okay. Coach Nash, right? They they were in their freshman year at Columbia University together playing basketball. So I get a call from Sake. And now, mind you, this is... What year did License to Ill go fucking quadruple nipple platinum or whatever, 86? Yeah, I was going to say 86, 87. Right. Like so it's this time the Beastie Boys have the biggest record in the history of records, right? I, them and like Carol King's Tapestry or something, uh-huh. right? <laughs> so Sake calls me and he says, "Yo, I want you to come up to my school and meet my man. He's a white boy who rhymes good like you." <laughs> exactly what he tells me, and I'm like, "Oh man, this that that sounds." Very corny to me. Right. But Sake is my man and he's my mentor, so I go. He introduces me to Pete. He wants us to form a group. Now, in retrospect, I know that Sake was very business minded, whereas I was not. I was right. doing this for the fun of it. I right. never saw it as a, as a livelihood. Uh, we did it for wreck. Okay? So being that the Beasties had the biggest record in the world at that moment he understood that the labels would rush to sign other sure. white boy groups right to me that was the corniest thing i'd ever heard oh, yeah for sure if i was going to have a gimmick it wasn't going to be one that somebody had already done <laughs> right, right? Right, right, right so and i was always a solo mc so um i said you know what let's form a multicultural group because that hadn't been done yet and that right, was more right. authentic to me. So I brought my beatbox, who was, um, he wrote Miser X-Men. His name is Shamik. Okay. So they call him Papa Shah or um, the Beat Miser. Mm. You remember the Heat Miser from... from uh, oh, yeah. Right. So he would do that, that routine. Right, right. But he wrote Miser X-Men. He was from my neighborhood and... Uh, he was part of the original group. And then I tried to bring my DJ on board, who at the time was Clark Kent, who I knew from Dana Dane, who I went to music and art with and cool. good friends with. Amazing. Right. right. So I was trying to build this group that really looked like 
what hip hop's supposed to look like sure, instead sure. of doing a knockoff of the beasties, you know what I mean? Right. Which would just, Which was very corny to me. Of course. Yeah. Okay, so and I knew they were manufactured because I knew them when they were just plain old white boys and I knew them when they were like the young and the useless and doing punk rock, right? right? right, right. So they had a, a joke record called Cookie Push that they put as a B-side, which isn't really even emceeing. It's just a kind of a hip-hop beat and them doing a Jerky Boys, right. Crank Yankers thing, right? Right, right, right. But that became their biggest hit because... Um, I remember WHBI playing that shit at two in the morning. Wow. Like Supreme Team show. Really? Interesting. Well, there were very few hip-hop records back then. Right. So if you were going to have a two-hour radio show, whatever was out (laughs) got played in the mix. And some of them were novelty records, like Mel Brooks' is Good to Be the King, (laughs) or Rappin' Rodney, or or Bizarre, like Tom Tom Club, and... um, was not was mm-hmm. and shit that if it had a beat you right. know what I mean it was going in the mix right 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 so yeah anyway I thought the beasties were, were orchestrated that Rick Rubin and these guys had put them together like yo if you keep doing this we can make you stars because right. they didn't set out that way they set out to be like a band right punk right they had right. fucking mohawks <laughs> right okay mm-hmm. so I mean, I remember in, in Camp Onus when I was a little kid, Adam Yauk clowning me for the way that I talk. He called me Yo-Yo wow. because I used to say, yo, 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 right. yo. So that he would make his living. I mean, rest in peace. That's my dude. We sure, became sure, very sure. close later on. I don't speak ill of the dead. But at that time, he thought it was hilarious so he was that I was steeped that. in black culture right. and that I had grown up in the neighborhood I grew up in and that I talked the way I talked. Right, right, right. So that for him to make his living saying yo, yo, yo later <laughs> on is, is, is a little unnatural to me. Right. Anyway. I get it, yeah. So we threw around some different names for the um, the group. I came up with the serving generals because at that time if you served another MC or right. you served another crew in a battle that was that was the slang of the moment was I'll serve you right right I'll burn you I'll toast you I'll roast you whatever so serve was was the word and the surgeon general they had just put on the side of my Newport 100 box this brand new they had to put some kind of oh, a warning, warning on that. right so the Surgeon General was in everyone's consciousness. Ah. So I said, we'll call it the Surgeon Generals. Ah. And um, we wrote some records. I wasn't really feeling it. I'll be honest. Did you put them to tape? Yeah, we, we recorded a couple times. I think Pete has all those early sessions. We did some things with Herbie Azor oh, really? out in Queens. Right. And we, we recorded at... Um, Funky Slice Studios, which was right behind the Alby Square Mall in downtown oh. Brooklyn. And anyway. Classic. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. But yet fleeting, nonetheless, right? Well, I just wasn't into it. So every time they would try to have a recording session or whatever, you got to understand by 86, 87, I was already a wild boy. I was yeah. getting high. I was carrying pistols and running the streets. And I didn't. 
really have any interest in being once graffiti died out i got more into the street shit right and i was making money there and i was satisfied right these dudes were hungry for something yeah, yeah. i didn't have any interest in it like right. i thought you know i was running with real drug dealers from fort green cats who had Benzes sure. and, and 325i convertibles in 86 and Maximas when they first came out with right. the digital door lock. Right. So to be a rapper was silly. Like the rappers wanted to be these guys. Of course. Right? The rappers I knew were riding the train still. Sure. Well, they don't have that the, 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 the capital, the cash that those hustlers did at the time. That was appealing, obviously. It's, right. it's always been a part they of it. They would borrow the chains. Yeah. From from my my people for the videos, really. So, wow. but also I was just wild. I was lost. I'm not gonna act like I was wise because I wasn't. No, no. I was foolish. So every time they would try to book something, I would never show up. You know what I mean? And I just wasn't into it. It sure. was all a joke to me. Like my life was good. I was about partying. I was about getting pussy. I was about getting high at that time in my life. Right. Right. So. I could get in any club in New York. I was well known. I was like a a, a, a street celebrity. Right, right. So what did I want to be? You know, Pete. On the other hand, he wasn't really known in the culture. Right. So I can understand why it would be advantageous to link him with me. Had that authenticity or whatever. But I was kind of like whatever, you know. And so you were at this point in time the. Getting up and painting and stuff that had already phased out by the by the later eighties. I did my last piece on the train in nineteen eighty six at Kingston Layup. Kingston. So what line is that? That's the twos and fives. Utica, Kingston. It runs through Crown Heights. They got a bunch of layups. So was that I, your Was that your favorite spot to get up? Your no, favorite spot to do what to to lay no, up? No. <laughs> it just happened to be where you could catch the IRTs, you know what I mean? I started on the Fs and Bs and Fort Hamilton. What's, what's IRT? The number lines. Interboro Rapid Transit. At one time, there were three different divisions that right. were privately owned. Oh, I see. The MTA, the city, the government unified them, like communism, right. socialism, right. whatever. Sure. Right? Well, it's advantageous, of course, I would see why they would try to do that. There are three different businesses that ran those. Right. Right. So IRT is all designated by the numbers. One, right. two, three, four, five, six, seven. Mm-hmm. There used to be a nine. There's no longer a nine. Um, There's a lot of defunct uh, lines, yeah. designations. Yeah, yeah. Pretty fascinating. Um, the double A, well, there was a double A. Right. right. That's the IND division or the independent line. Okay. Okay. So there was your, a K? Your A's, your C. Yeah, there was a QB. There was a, a, a crazy trains, man. You know, JFK Express. Interesting. And you <laughs> saw all those. Obviously, you you've been you grew up here. Yeah. You saw all them kind of come and phase out eventually, too, right? Yeah. I rode all those, you know, double-letter designations were usually the local trains, the double R, the CC. You know what I mean? So... I, I rode all those trains. I rode on all those trains. But um, back to the story. Yes. Once graffiti faded out, I kind of got into 
worse shit. And I thought at 86 that it was over because they began painting the IRT trains white and graffiti was being removed. Later on, it had a little comeback on the B line and the Franklin Avenue like shuttle. Later on, meaning like what, mid-90s or something like that? or, or Nah, like late 80s. Okay, so a few, 89. just a couple of years later, it kind of popped. Yeah, yeah. Right. There, were, there were dudes still able to do it. I thought it was over. Right. And there was a kind of a sensibility because once crack came into play, what you have to understand is that every 15-year-old kid could become a successful money-making operation. Whereas in the past, if you know it was heroin or whatever, you had to have a connect. You had to be somebody. Anybody could. You could cop a twenty of of coke, right. rock it up, make a profit, go right. back and cop. You didn't need a right. connect. You didn't need anyone to vouch for you. So all of a sudden, everyone's getting money. Everyone's wearing gold and dapper Dan suits right. and carrying Tech Nines and Mac Elevens and purchasing automobiles so a lot of the hip-hop shit it was like yo that's corny we don't do that anymore we're getting money right especially writing graffiti which got ink on your fucking suede ballys right spray paint on your gear no man once you start getting pussy yeah you leave that alone you want to look fresh you know what i mean sure so i get it so Spinning on the cardboard, that shit was considered played out. Oh, you still doing that hippity hoppity beat street bullshit, <laughs> motherfucker? Right. We getting money right now, you right. know what I mean? Step your game up. So this kind of a capitalistic, uh, sick thinking as I look at it now. But I got, I fell victim to that. I got lost. Well, it's alluring, uh, you know. Money, money is intoxicating. To yeah, women and all that stuff. And cocaine is a hell of a drug. Right. Anyway. I was out of it. The best as I can understand, I started selling coke in the clubs and I got into some totally other shit. I saw Search at a club called The World, of course, which used to be in the Lower East Side, and he played me a demo on a cassette in his car. And I was like, oh, cool, these guys have actually done it. They put it together. I introduced Pete and search at the Latin quarters around that time. Do you remember the, the night? Yeah. Do you remember yeah. who was playing? Was it just DJs or was it a concert? Oh, it was always a show. It was always, right. so, you know. Who were some, just as a sidebar, just for two seconds, like, do you, what are some of the, I mean, you obviously been to these clubs many times over back then, but just memorable concerts of that period of time because they're so... They're so historic now. With time, they've become more... Like, thinking back when seeing Public Enemy, their first few shows, Eric B. Well, Rock coming. One thing that. you have to understand, at that time, I was smoking dust every day. Right. So a lot of things blur in my mind, and my recollections sure. may, may differ from someone else's recollections. Which I understand. Um, yeah. And it's not like you were, like, in line with a ticket, like, waiting no. to see your favorite act. You know, no. you were a part of the tapestry. And of that thing. was what was so bizarre, is that the same kids you came there with and rode the train with, the next week they might have the hit record that the Red Alert was playing. Right. So they'd be on stage. But you knew them as regular... It's like Ultra Mag. I saw them get on. So... Um, you know, Bismarcky. I used to hang out with this dude every day. Really? I'll be Square Mall. He would beatbox, you know, Kane before he had records. 
and then the next week they're the number one. Right, so, right. you know, we would all, and you got to understand, Latin Quarters was a tiny place, right. unlike Union Square or something, or the Fun House, or you know, those are Roxy. Yeah, they were larger large venues. Clubs, right. Latin Quarters upstairs, there was no VIP. There was no everyone's just together. So. Right. It's like the biggest drug dealers, the thugs, and all the recording stars of the time. And there's Mike Tyson and Houdini and and Eric B. at the bar. And, you know, everyone's just hanging out. You're all in the same circle. So we would all go afterwards to the Burger King around the corner and break night, you know, and uh, it'd be... Sometimes ultra mag, uh, jazzy, Bismarcky, Dana Dane, and we'd just all be sitting at a table, you know, snapping on each other, right. spitting rhymes, whatever. So I saw a lot of shows that were memorable, but the cool thing was watching people become. Sure. You know what I Your mean? Your peers. You yeah, know, yeah. People in the crowd. Yeah, I, I yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah. And that exists. In a much smaller way now, but I mean, of course, then because these all these artists they're they're like known the world over, you know, and they're yeah. the physical material that they put out is like it's timeless uh, works of art, you know. Like some uh, of my personal favorites were cats I didn't know, like um, these dudes from Queens, Casanova Rudd oh, and yeah, Super Lover C. Yeah. They put on some of the best shows I've ever dope, seen. Dope. And um, everybody like likes due to James Brown, but my song was Super Casanova Duh. with the Levert hook. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, very slept on group. Yeah, too. but they could dance. Right. And they would bring out C.P. Lacey was a comedian at the time. He used to perform in Washington Square Park and 125th. And he was very good at impersonations. He could okay. do Elvis or whoever. So he, when they would do the hook to do to James Brown, he would slide out of the wings with the wig on like James Brown. Wow. wow. I gotcha. You know yeah. what I mean? So it was showmanship. Um, KRS murdered it many times. Boogie Down Productions, like, I saw KRS battle Malik Mel live oh, on stage. Yes. That's a historical moment because it was like old school passing the torch. To, yeah. Or or the golden era. Not passing the torch. The golden era snatching it from the exactly. old school. That was <laughs> the one where it was something like he had a thousand he put a thousand dollars up or something like that. There was some Mel said he battled him for a hundred uh-huh. and I guess, you know, they had just got their record deal right. or whatever, but he pulled out it. A G. A whole yard, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And you, what you got to understand about Chris, to this day, he, he's not somebody you'd want to battle. Right. He can just go freestyle, whatever. It's just, you know, um, there may be dudes who are nicer on records, but I don't know anyone who's nicer in a live battle. He had so much material at that time, no one had ever heard. We only knew South Bronx. Oh, was wow. the single. Right. The album hadn't dropped yet. So oh, he had all this shit. Dope. So he started going in. 
Mel got so frustrated, he dropped to the stage and started doing push-ups. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I swear to God. He's so heated, he had to just, like, yeah. do some push-ups. Right. That's true. He couldn't beat him. He's like, well, fuck it. I can do more one-arm push-ups than you. <laughs> right. But, Did you um, ever see him in the yards? Did you ever see Karras get, actually get up? I mean, he, was, he made that known in his records, but, I mean... Was that more like just part of the show, kind of? Or I saw um, KRS-One tags more in stations and motion tags. I don't think he was really, really going to the okay. yards heavy like right. that. But I remember the sixth train, the first stop when you came from Brooklyn, where you could catch the local, was Brooklyn Bridge. Right. So we always rode in the last car. Okay. And when you got off the five or the four at Brooklyn Bridge to catch a local in the back of the station where the last car would pull in, there was a tag. And I remember it clear as day because I was like, who the fuck is this? And it said KRS-One, the Celebrity Three. Huh. Okay. And later when I heard him, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, okay, that's that dude. Right? Right. And he had a couple tags around, but it was like weird. He wrote Krishna. Interesting. Yeah. Really? It was it was bizarre. Right, right. Like, you know. Um, but throw ups mostly. He would just get up real quick or something. Like tags. That. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Tags. Right. But he did his thing. What you gotta understand, everyone back then, if you ask um Big Daddy Kane to autograph right. your record right now, he's got a better hand style than most cats who call themselves graffiti writers. <laughs> right, today. right, right. Everyone was nasty back then. Right. Everyone had a tag. Some see, I came up in the era of these Renaissance b boys. Right, right. You couldn't just do one thing. Right. Yeah, you had everything. You had to do everything. Right. But. You look at cats like Doze Green or Rommel Z. Rest in peace. These cats will battle you in any of the elements right. and toast you. Right, right. So I was trying to be that. It was like, oh, you're just an MC. That's all? <laughs> Fuck out of here. Right. Like everybody, they wrote, they danced, they DJ, they beatbox, they, you know, 52 blocks. You had to be nice with whatever right, right, it was. Right. So most cats from that golden era, they wrote. Cats from the first generation all wrote. All my heroes, um, Peso. They they were my heroes on the one train as graffiti writers first. Mm -hmm. Rate one twenty five. You know Charlie Chase, Tony Tone. All these dudes were known to me as style master graffiti writers first. Right. Once they got a, a record deal, they stopped writing, and it was disappointing to me. I was heartbroken when dudes sure. like Peso stopped writing graffiti. Right. I was like, what? These dudes were masters. So eventually you had to pick a lane. Right. And it sounds like you did eventually as well. Yeah. I, I decided I'm going to be a graffiti writer. I was terrible at popping and locking, though I did it. I battled all right. kind of dudes in Electric Boogie. I wasn't that good at it. Um, even emceeing, I never thought that... See, honestly, I wanted to sing. Yeah. I wanted to be able to sing like Al Green. You know what I mean? Mm. 
I thought that was power. Chicks will throw their panties at you. Sure. So rhyming was like for dudes who couldn't carry a tune. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you got a point. Right? Right. But I did it. I did just about everything you can do, you know? Um, so I want to, like, you know, figure out... I, I also did skateboarding right, I, in right. 1977, you know what I mean? Right. I did... I, I, I had a CB radio in mm-hmm. 1975 and had a handle and was trying to... <laughs> people won't tell you, a lot of hip-hop came from CB radio talk. Uh, from what, communicating from different parts of the city or something? Like, what would you... There was a craze at that time. They had movies, television show, BJ and the Bear, any which oh, way right. but lose Convoy. Convoy. We got ourselves a Convoy well, truck. Well, gro- growing up in the now. South, I know CBs from people in their pickup trucks, like, you know, talking so, to truckers and shit. Right. You right. take a handle, just right. like a graffiti writer or an MC, right? right? right. And you spit little rhymes. Oh, dope. There's a bear in the air. He's doing double nickels. You know what I mean? Like, all the, <laughs> right, they right, had this right. slang, linguistics. So that was a huge craze in New York City. And they had a uh, hmm. they had a commercial for Meineke Breaks or something. Midas Muffler. I don't know. Meineke, I think. Where the dude is trucking, and he's on the mic, and the song goes, I was driving down the street one storm at night. Up ahead, I saw a terrible fright. I slam on the brakes, but they ain't all there. Missed the young lady by only a hair. That's like a country western trucking song. Right. And that's all the first MCs. Busy B, Starsky, Rest in Peace. These cats all use that. Oh, they kicked that? Yeah. Wow. So a lot of that shit all has its roots from different influences. But... I was saying this to say what? I don't know. I went off on a tangent. No, I know. And that's what I love most because obviously like, you know, us talking about your life and your story, it's not, it's not like we're not going off of record, like records that came out or albums that came out. You've always, you've lived a life where you're definitely in... You oh, know, we were trying to tell now. the third base story, right? That's well, where we started. Well, that's where we started, but okay. uh, but you, there's also a very important. You were point asking when you, me about Latin quarters and how well, dudes did everything. And, yeah, right. So, but even at that stage, though, that's when you're pulling away from graffiti too, because the 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 meat of it is what I'm trying to get your story in the midst of all this. I'll stuff. tell you this: graffiti yeah. saved my fucking life. Okay, kept me out of a whole lot of trouble. And when I thought I quit graffiti. Mm-hmm. Is when I got into um, a lot more harmful shit. Right. And it wasn't until I got back into my art that I kind of was able to save my sanity. Right, right. So, you know, at the time when Pete and Sake wanted to make a record... I knew that Search was doing it. He had a single with Warlock Records. That's right. Off of the Mary Jane Girls beat. That's right. Yep. And I remember the rhyme about, you know, standing on the speaker or something. It was it was dope. He was good. And he had that little dance and showmanship and right. everybody, go white boy, go white boy. <laughs> I saw him perform at the quarters. Now, I knew him from high school. He was never an MC back then, but he had become that. Mm-hmm. So I introduced 
peep to him in the hopes that they would form a group. Now, what Dante Ross, my man's system, always calls white-on-white crime, <laughs> no white MC ever wants to like another white MC or <laughs> give him any props, That's right? That's hilarious. Right, right, right. <laughs> so they want to be the only one. And I probably suffered from a little of that, too. I thought all the rest of them were cornball, you know right, what I'm right. saying? But I thought a lot of MCs of every shade were cornball. Right. You I know, you have to believe you're the best and everyone else is whack. That's part sure. of that sport. It's ego-driven, right? Yeah. So I, I told the two of them they should link up and form a group. And I brought them into... Dante Ross, who was an intern at Def Jam on Elizabeth Street. Right. And I was like, yo, you should sign these dudes, whatever, boom, boom, boom. After that, I was out of it. And you already so, knew Dante from the clubs and stuff. He was graffiti. Oh, because he, yeah, he did some. He was he, a graffiti kid. Right, right. He did trains too, right? Or walls. Oh, yeah. yeah. He did his thing. And he used to write with, uh, with Mackie and oh, some dope. of them Go Club dudes. Now I know this is now this might be jumping. I know this is jumping ahead a bit, but just as a side point too, I know that you remember this cover. Yeah, that's now, a real train. I painted a whole car. Yeah. So this bottom. is the stimulated like when when can we put a pause on? Yeah. It? Take a piss. Okay. So, so what happened? Um, I began selling coke in the clubs. Mm-hmm. And doing a little too much of my own supply, okay. and I was off of, you know, I was listening to club music, whatever they play in there. I was dressing the part, mm-hmm. so I fit in. You couldn't right. go in there, b boy down. You you wouldn't right. get in the door. Sure. So it was at the time what they call grasshopper style creepers and a, and a you know a, a, a black mock neck and a blazer mm-hmm. and that's like. Before uh, Jungle Brothers and Queen Latifah jumped on the, the house mm-hmm. music, you know? Right, right. So dudes were listening to fucking Depeche Mode and shit like that, right, or right. the Smiths and the Cure. And the, it's a very interesting time in New York City club history, right. too. So I see Search outside of the world. Okay. And he pops in the demo cassette. And I'm like, oh, cool, you guys are actually doing it. And I guess that because Clark had to go on the Fresh Fest tour with Dana Dane, mm-hmm. he gave the project to his little cousin, Richie Rich. Interesting. And that's how um, they formed that group. And my man Sam Sever did some production and whatever. They had a, yeah. They had a nice demo. Incredible producer, too. Very underrated in his career. Sam is the man. Yeah. I mean, he was 14 years old making records for Just Ice and these cats. That's there. amazing. B, he did tracks on Raising Hell. I did not know that. Yeah, a lot of people don't know. Yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> I always, I always thought that um, Downtown Science was slept on too. For what that was. Bosco Money, that was a yeah. graffiti partner of mine from the neighborhood. Oh, that's what's up. Yeah, oh, cool. Bosco was a writer, good dude. Cool. So, um, anywho, right. I got locked up. I was in Rikers Island in the day room. They're watching Video Music Box. Right. And I see this Brooklyn Queens video come on. Okay. So I'm telling my man next to me, yo, that's my dudes. Yo, I wrote this song. Mm -hmm. And everybody's like, yeah, right. 
Yeah, sure. Go if those are your people, tell them to bail you out. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> so, but I was happy for them that they were doing it. You know, so Brooklyn Queens was originally a song that Pete and I had worked on together. Okay. Search added his own verse, and they changed up the the, the beat was different. The hook it changed. It became something else. But Pete used some of my verses. So when I got out, one of the first things I did was went and back then it was cassettes. Right. I boosted the cassette of the Cactus album and I opened that whole, you know, it had the J card that folded right. out forever and I'm reading all the liner notes and all I wanted was a shout. Right. And I wasn't even on. Mm. Yeah. And I saw Pete shouting out cats that were my people. Okay. See, I used to bring Pete to Albee Square Mall. I used to bring him places. I had to introduce him to certain cats. Yeah, you connected him to certain people. Well, he couldn't even come in the neighborhood unless you. certain people knew. Yo, this is my man. He's okay. You know what I mean? It, it's like that in any neighborhood. Sure. You, you, you got to know the right people. So I made certain introductions for him, and I saw him bigging up all these dudes and I'm like they don't even know you like that you know what I mean <laughs> I didn't get a shout and um, I remember he he thanks William Blake on the liner notes so my, my government name is Blake so I'm speed reading through the thing you know he was a poetry major at right. Columbia right. University so right. he's shouting out like all these fucking literary figures. Yeah. I saw Blake. I'm like, oh, there I am, way down there. And it was like William Blake. So <laughs> Not I, quite. I felt a little disappointed. But I don't hold any resentment because I didn't want that path. Right, you know? right. And I'm glad. I'm really, really glad. At that time, as wild as I was, as much as I was um, getting high and... and, and carrying firearms and running wild and running through women like unprotected. Had I had some celebrity and money and a hit record, I'd be dead right now. It's guaranteed. Yeah. I'm relatively certain I would not have survived. So there'd be a lot of access for someone that was kinda Yeah, yeah. Full I wasn't my head wasn't right. Right, right. right. You know what I mean? Um, maybe today I could make a record, but I have no interest. You know what I mean? I like that ship sailed. So, um, even today, I don't know. You know, celebrity is a is a is a motherfucker. V. Oh yeah. So anyway, I was gone about ten years, in and out of institutions, and trying to get my act together, and um. When I got back to New York was like 96. And part of the way I got back to New York is I was upstate when the Warped Snowboard Tour came through. Okay. And my man was like the road manager on the bus with um it was Fishbone and it was the alcoholics, the okay. licks. Dope. 
and so I'm on the bus, I'm chilling with all these cats, and and he's like, yo, what the fuck are you doing, man? You know, you used to be nice. So he started lacing me up with little graphic jobs at Loud Records. Okay, okay. He was part of that street team with sure. Howie and Gobby and all them cats. Right. And the alcoholics were signed to Loud Records, right? Right. So I started doing little, because I had a little bullshit clothing line I was trying to do up there. And, um, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm printing T-shirts, and you know, I'd always had a hustle like that. Right. Especially when I wasn't trying to be a fucking drug kingpin or some type of a gangster. Sure. Right. My <laughs> art is what I would rely on. When I was locked up, I would always fall back on my artwork. And incarcerated, I made a good career out of doing like cards and you know people want to send things home totally. to their girl totally. or whatever you do their name you know what I mean right. I, I stayed with commissary and cigarettes and right. you know so that was my hustle and dudes would always tell me yo you, you you got talent man what fuck are you doing in here like what's wrong with you man you got skills how long were you away for Ah, uh, man, I was what they call a skid-bid kid, okay, gotcha. which means I'm going back and forth, in and out. Yeah, I come yeah. out, I'm on parole, and I get violated. I go back in two weeks, you know right, what I mean? Right, right. It, it, it was like, you know, Motel 6, we'll leave the line on for you. Mm. It's tough. It's tough, <laughs> yeah. man. Yeah, when you come out, you hit the brakes, and you get bagged again and go back. And the same dudes are still there bidding that you left. They're mm. like, what the fuck is wrong with you, man? You was home. Yeah. Like, what are you doing back here, you know? So, really, getting into my art again while incarcerated is what kind of brought me back to sanity. So, I'm staying up, up there, and I'm, I'm avoiding the city. I'm trying to do good, and I got, you know, I'm staying clean, and I'm doing this artwork, and I meet my man from Loud Records on the tour bus, and he start lacing me with some little gigs. So I'm doing graphics, I'm submitting shit for album covers, okay. and um, <clears throat> you know I did Inspector Deck, I did uh, Mob Deep, Murder Music, a bunch of shit, dope, dope. and it became very difficult to do from afar sure also I have a daughter you know and she mm. was living in the city so I'd be coming down to see her on the weekends right. and anyway I started um, considering relocating back to New York on a different basis you know what I mean right, right, <laughs> not right. trying to get back into the same old knucklehead shit I was into so I went into Bombito's footwork and like I say, we had these um, connections going back to Columbia. You know that me and Pete started the first hip-hop radio show. Clark Kent was the DJ right. at Columbia well, that yeah. later became the Stretch and Bobito show. But so you were a part of the, the, the first incarnation. with Because I know of the Pete Nice and, uh, yes. and Clark Kent version, but you were there in the, stu yeah, yeah. In the station with them. Yeah, when I was there. Right. I think the first... Um, Recording that exists, they're shouting me out like, Dope. MIA, all points bulletin, like, where the fuck you at? I was supposed to be there, right, you know what right, I mean? Right. And, uh, wow. So, yeah, 
So then that brings us almost full circle. Right. You see Bob, Bob start putting me on, and even though the things I did for Loud probably paid better than the right. things I did for Bob, by the time they had a corny art department and and all these politics, and by the time the shit would come out, it didn't even look like my design. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And I don't think that you know Inspector Deck is one of the most underrated lyricists. He he was anticipated out of the whole clan to be that guy. Right, right, right. And they played him out, not just the artwork, like that whole release. Like, I don't know what happened. Yeah, how do you, definitely. How do you... I mean, if you listen to a deck verse on anyone else's song, with Gangstar, with whoever, right. he kills it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you go wrong making a, a deck album? But anyway, they fucked it sure. up. So with Bob... He gave me full creative control. And he was pretty much letting the artists do whatever they wanted. Yeah, yeah. He had never had artwork before because they were all white labels. Yeah. White yeah. sleeves. So with Doomsday, he wanted to do something different. Doom wanted to do something different. They were like, yo, this is going to be a double LP. Let's go all out. Right. First time that Fondalum did something like that. Right. So I'm at the counter at Footwork with my man Vaz. It's his birthday today. Right. Big up Vazzy Vaz. Oh. Turned yes. 40. Wow. My man. <laughs> short, definitely bought records Shorty from one forty. Yeah. And um, Ellie. Vaz. Ellie Escobar. Yes. And Yak Balls. And that whole TCK squad. They're little right. graffiti writers from Queens mostly. Big up those cats because they really um, welcomed me back when cool. I felt like... I didn't know how to fit in in New York. Nobody knew who I was. You right, know what right. I mean? So I'm going to a lot of um, art departments at clothing lines and record labels. And like, yo, put me on. And they're right. like, who the fuck are you? Where you been the last 10 years? Where's your sure. experience? Do you know how to use a Macintosh? And I'm like... <laughs> so I'm seeing kids who... I considered toys in the graffiti realm. Right. Cats I used to rob and take their spray paint. Now they're they're the art director. And I'm coming to them on the humble with my little portfolio. Like, hey, Whoa. can I yeah. get a job? Please listen to my demo. You know. Right. And dudes are like, you don't remember me, do you? Oh no, right. <laughs> you robbed me. And I'm like, oh man. So it was rough re-entering. I can imagine society. And it's rough for anybody coming out of the system or, or getting clean after a period of, of, of um, drug abuse or alcoholism to find their ball bearings. You know sure. what I'm saying? So these dudes really helped me. These young cats were still excited about hip hop, but they knew the history. They knew who I was. They were like encouraging me. Yo, you're a legend. You should do this and that. Why don't you boom, boom, boom. So Doom walks in. And he's asking Bob, yo, you know any good artists? We can put this thing together. And I happen to be in the corner. <laughs> and Bob <laughs> points to me like, uh. And we just clicked. So. And it turned out that we had this long history, even though I didn't know Doom from the KMD days. Right. I pretty much am like behind the scenes responsible for all of that. Sure. You know, I put 
these two dudes together. They form third base. They put Nas on. They put Curious on. They put OC on. They put KMD on. There's yes. this long history that, you know, I was somewhat, like, behind the scenes involved in. Right. Even though I don't take credit for none of that or whatever, it probably would have happened one the, way or another. Sure, Someone but the like lineage Nas was, was going to get on. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? If Search hadn't found him, somebody would have. I remember walking into Def Jam offices and telling Dante he needed to put on this cat called Big Daddy Kane. <laughs> really? That nobody had ever heard of. Wow. And him trying it. Def Jam was supposed to sign him. Wow, that would have uh, been interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> there probably would be no real cold chilling without like without a cane. I mean, he's the, the benchmark of that Who label. Who knows? Shoulda, woulda, coulda, right? Right, of course. So, huh, right, right. Yeah, but um, it's funny because like right now, I, I work on... Um, I have a lot of scripts for television shows. Dope. I'm doing some animated series. So I was meeting with uh, Complex. They got this new Go90 network, you know, Okay. which is owned by Hearst and Verizon Media in a joint partnership. They're trying to be like video on demand to compete with Hulu and Netflix. Right. So my man Noah Callahan Beaver is over there, right? right? And... He's uh, like my number one advocate. Right, and he's been in the game for a long time as well. So he's telling these, you know, and they, they're money cats. They don't, they don't always get it. He's sure. like, yo, this, this dude, this is the programming we need. Check this shit out. This is like the roots of what Complex was supposed to be, getting right. back to it. So anyway it looked like we might have a deal on the table we're in negotiations and then this crazy shit happens with Russell Simmons right Mm -hmm. so Russell steps down from all his companies he's gonna go be a yogi on the beach and meditate right Mm -hmm. so I guess they made this dude Rosenberg the head of Def Jam right Paul Rosenberg he headhunts his whole dream team, the Cats, Dart, La, and Noah that he started out with, you know, in, in, with Dante Ross and right. Hems. Right, that stimulated, yeah. Right. So, he must have made him a great offer because, you know, Noah was the man at Complex. You right, got right. it. Over the New Year break, Noah puts in his fucking two weeks' notice and. So that deal is off the table. So it's all funny. It comes back to like Def Jam and all that shit. So yeah, it's a trip, man. When, well, <laughs> when you've been in in this world for as long as you have, too, you've seen a lot of people come and go. You've kind of existed in a lot of ways, formats to different kinds of people at different periods of time. Obviously, I mean, that's why I think I wanted to do this conversation so much because it's. It, it goes beyond the music, and it's so steeped in just the culture of New York City, but just, like, one person's journey of, like, you know, an artist that's had ups and downs and, like, the whole kind of framework, you know what I'm I'll saying? I'll tell you honestly, anybody of my generation or a little older, you know, I'm 50 right now. Okay. A lot of these cats we're talking about, Sake and Dante Ross, they're 52 and better, right? right? Graffiti and skateboarding. That's the link. 
everyone right. started there. Whether they're now known for New York hardcore punk rock right. or hip hop uh -huh. or music journalism <laughs> or visual arts, like you know, you got Hayes and Say City and guys like Say Adams, sure, really well known. Uh, you know, Lee known as in in that world. Cause Reese, they all came from the same little circle. You know what I mean. Right. So all those cats, you know, like Dante Ross, Mackie, all this these downtown dudes that I met. Because mm -hmm. I was a Brooklyn cat, but there really weren't any like white boys in my neighborhood. So when I went to the Ville, I met all these cats from like Lower Manhattan, LES, or West Beth, or you right, know, right, right. Uh, Chelsea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of those dudes, Mike Sace, and all them cats. You know what I mean? They were all graffiti writers and skateboarders, and that's like the root of New York street culture. That now is dominant the world over. Right, right. So some of those cats went other directions, and now it's like the spokes in a wheel, you know what I mean? It all started in the center, and then those things branch out, and now we see they're very different. Like I'm, my man Ali Asha, right? Um, he's like a rockabilly dude now. He's got a clothing line that looks like. Um, the 50s mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's dope but you might not see the connect if you look at you know that he comes from graffiti right. and skateboarding and New York street culture so another cat like Mackie who became the drummer for the Crow Mags and Bad Brains and whatever you might say what the fuck does that have to do with you know hip hop mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but he was the king of the three line inside Mackie he went right. to music and art when I was a, a freshman he was already like the man in graffiti and skateboarding and all these dudes know each other and that's why a dude like Dante Ross can produce an album right now that'll win Grammys because he's not locked into one way of thinking that's why like Santana will come to him mm -hmm. and he'll say okay we're gonna bring in this drummer Mackie and we're gonna bring in this cat and we're gonna you know what I mean right and that's a New York sensibility so I hear people trying to categorize and divide things now and it always seems to have some kind of racial or class fucking backstory you know what I mean oh you can't do that that's black music oh you can't do that that's white boy music and it's like it's music yeah it's fucking music. Man. Right, right. Yeah, I how, mean... How many notes are there, right? Sure. They're all black. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I, I don't know. This shit is crazy. Yeah, well, I mean, but somehow, you know, you, you, you navigated through, through this in a very unique way, you know? I think there aren't a lot... I mean, you mentioned some people in the past. Yeah, your contemporaries have had a certain trajectory, you know, up with inside the industry as, like... But I see the bigger picture right. is that, you know, if you've ever been incarcerated, you'll see how a handful of corrections officers can control thousands of men. 
they divide and conquer, and they use race to do that. Mm. Oh, no, you can't hang out with them, and they, they got beef with you, and they encourage this kind of thing. And I mm. feel like right now in a larger society, they're trying to divide and conquer. Oh, yeah. And if you open social media right now, everything is, like, racially divisive. They had a fucking movie based on a Marvel Comics character, and everyone's trying to make it, like... Yo, I was a fan of Black Panther in the 70s, mm-hmm. and every other Marvel comic, right? Right. But it's a fucking comic, right? Mm-hmm. So I opened my Facebook... It was an actual Black Panther's birthday. Huey P. Newton, a real fucking superhero. Right, right. And nobody mentions that. They're all wow. talking about Waka Waka Land or some right. fictional shit. Right. Now, and they're using it divisively. People were posting fake pictures of, of white girls got assaulted in the theater. Did you see this? No, I didn't see that. B, it was like a scam. Oh, wow. Yeah, I went to... They they post a picture from some other incident Mm -hmm. of a girl with an eye jammy. Right. And says, I tried to go to the movie theater. They they beat me up. Oh, my God. And I'm like, what's the motivation for everyone trying to divide everyone, right? So when I was a kid, I liked comic books and I liked fantasy as an escape from my reality because my reality was we were poor and I had to go eat breakfast and lunch at PS38 even in the summertime when there was no school Mm. that school lunch program was started by the Black Panthers in Oakland that shit fed me kept me alive when my family was broke right because my mother uh, died of cancer and mm. four years of chemotherapy, radiology, all that shit, it, it broke our bank. My father didn't have any insurance. Well, well, yeah, I'll do that for sure. Okay, he's probably still paying that off. So we had the government cheese, the peanut butter that came in the big silver right. jar, you know, can. Uh, USDA surplus, right? Reagan cheese. So... Let's not confuse the mythology, the fiction, and forget about the actual heroes. Right. So they're trying to fictionalize all this, um, the letdown, the Baz Luhrmann, whatever. It's like this same story that I keep hearing over again. Ed Pisker made a comic book. It's the version that Fab Five Freddy, Russell Simmons approved Hip-hop started on this day in this rec room, and then we'll jump right to Def Jam story. (laughs) So we'll give a nod to the pioneers. They do it with graffiti, too. Oh, I don't doubt it. Tacky and Julio 204, and then they jump right to fucking Scene and Dondi, and it's like, wait a minute. There's a whole generations you skipped. Right. So... In telling the real history, hip-hop, as I experienced it, was a positive force for unification, and it kept me out of trouble, it kept me alive, it kept me away from gangs. At some point, hip-hop became fake gangster music. Mm -hmm. It was never that, B. 
if you listen to early MCs, they never talked about. In fact, if you called them me, the doc, a hood, a rock, running around the streets, robbing people on the block, nah, that's not my style. To crime, I'm not related. As far as I'm concerned, I'm too sophisticated. Mm. Slick Rick, another guy I went to high school with, I used to battle him in the lunchroom, the Kango crew, everything. Right. He said, calling me a thief? Nah, don't even try it. Sit down and eat your slice of pizza and be quiet. Right. So at some point, it became cool to be a thief, a gangster, a hoodlum, a dirtbag. And to me, that came in with the Beasties. License to Ill is one of the first gangster rap albums mm. I've ever heard. Right, right, right. Because they had a punk rock mentality. Sure. But it's fiction because they were mostly upper middle class or wealthy white kids from right. Manhattan or Brooklyn Heights. Or, you know what I mean? They didn't actually live that life. Kids who were living that life, who that was their reality, they didn't want to rhyme about that. Right. They wanted to rhyme about partying, having fun, getting girls, you know, something aspirational. Right, right. Right? If your reality is poverty and crime, you don't want to go to a party and hear more poverty and crime. No, it's a drag, man. That was designed to be sold to kids from elsewhere, vicariously. So cats like Rick Rubin understood that. Because they were already fans of Ozzy Bites the Bat and right. shock shit. Oh, right. it'll piss off the suburban moms. The kids will buy it. Right, 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 right. right. So they were the type of producers that would want to get their own records banned. They would hope that a Christian Mothers Coalition would write a letter Right. Against their artists, Slayer. Great press. Right? Yeah. So, um, but that story is not. The real killers I knew, and I knew a few real killers, real gangsters, mm-hmm. they don't listen to gangster rap. They, they want to hear the shy lights. Right. You Always. come home. From a hard day's work. <laughs> sure. You want to hear some happy love music and put your feet up. Right. <laughs> if you would dare play a record in them dudes' presence that was some punk kid talking about, I'll punch you in your face, I'll shoot you in the mouth. Right. They slapped the shit, get that shit out of here. <laughs> right. So that music was not designed for... inner city cats that music was designed to be sold to racist motherfuckers outside of the city who had this fantasy of what the rough tough projects was like right well it's like the movies it's TV right you know? black exploitation movies right that's what that's what they're selling and at some point, hip-hop changed, and that's why I had no interest in being part of the recording industry. Because cats that I used to rhyme with, like, yeah, they might talk about having a Cadillac or a gold chain, but again, I saw them on the subway with me every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. And the cats who were actually 
had to scramble or strong arm dudes, they didn't rhyme about that. Right. They rhymed about fly shit. You want to attract the girl, you know what I mean? Exactly. So no girl who lives in the hood wants a dude who's like mugging people. Right, right, right. They want somebody who's who's uh, you know a little sophisticated. That's why Ricky and Dana they used to put on this English accent. Uh huh. Because the girls thought it was cute. You know what I mean. So, Rick came from England. It's West Indian. When he was a baby, he didn't talk like that in real life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but girls thought it was exotic, interesting. Sure. Oh, you're from Europe? Oh. So he played up this whole sophisticated role. So I tried to emulate that. I called myself Lord Scotch when I rhymed. There was nobody else was Lord at the time. When I first got in the MC, there were really only two names that everybody had. Okay. Like, you take your government name, which for me was Blake, and you say Blakey Blake. Right, right. right. Mikey Mike, Joey Joe, right? Uh-huh. Or you take the first letter of your name and be Master B, mm-hmm. Master J, Master A. Now, being the only white boy in the cipher, I didn't think that master was necessarily a name. <laughs> you got to understand, roots had come out at the time when I was sure, getting into sure. it. <laughs> it was a little racially sensitive. So, but to me, Lord Scotch, because, you know, they always ask you, what are you? I used to work at a weed spot on 100 Myrtle. It's not there anymore because they built the Metro Tech. They took out that whole block. Right but it was the first weed spot before you got to the court buildings. And the dreads, you know, they called everybody. If you were from Trinidad, your name was Trini. Right. If you were from England, your name was English, right? So they asked me where I'm from. And I was like, ah, you know, my father's Scottish and Native American. My mother's German, Jew, and Austrian. And they were like, oh, Scotch. (laughs) Call you Scotch, you know? So I ran with that for a while, and I wrote that as a secondary name. Right. Scott 79, yes. Right. Because I saw other cats writing as their secondary name. If you wanted to do a more intricate with more letters, wild style, and really, dudes right. were writing things like Swiss and Welsh and well, place names, Paris, Africa 131, right. you know what I mean? Dandy wrote Asia, mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I thought that was fly. And then I took Lord because it was like nobility. Not that I was God, right, right. but they're like lords and ladies. Because I was really, when I came in as a freshman, the Kango crew, Dana Dane, Slick Rick, Lance Romance, Omega, and Kualski, they were the reigning champions at music and art. And they were sophomores already when we were freshmen. So we used mm-hmm. to battle them in the lunchroom every day. Right. And they had this already, this British aristocracy thing going on. <laughs> Yo, they were ahead of their time with Kangos and Bally's and Clark Wallabies when everybody else was still wearing nylon BVDs. Right, know? right. 
these dudes would come with silk suits to high school, man. The skinny ties, you know, oh, dope, cardigans. Dope. Like, they were next-level rude boy stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I was trying to catch up with them, you know? So I put the Lord on my name. And it was all aspirational. Because I wasn't Lord of shit. You know, Lord of the flies, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, but that's hip-hop, though. Right. You know? But somewhere it changed where you take rich kids and now they want to pretend to be gangster boo from the hood. Right. So it went the opposite direction. Total 360 different. A cat from Philadelphia made a record, a single, not an album, Schooly D, that talked about a little gangster shit. And Rick Rubin loved that record. So he had the beasties like, yo, this is what we need to do. But that wasn't a New York thing. Right. So they made the first gangster rap album where you hear first-person stories of I'll shoot you in your face, and I robbed this motherfucker, and I robbed that motherfucker, and I smoked a woola. That was <laughs> bum shit. Dude. Right, right, right. But punk rock, which they came from, had that sort of aesthetic where these were maybe they were rich kids they were angry rebelling but against what like they had everything they're chilling sure. so this sort of um nihilistic you know vomit on your shoes kind of thing right <laughs> <laughs> like poor kids didn't do that Poor kids wanted to keep their shoes really clean. Right. We walked with a toothbrush in our back pocket because we only had one fresh pair of suede pumas. Right, right. These kids, their parents would want them to dress nice, and they would fuck the shit up, and, and mm-hmm. you know, want to wear a ripped black concert T-shirt. Right. Totally opposite way of thinking. So at some point, that became the best-selling shit. Because what I'm talking about really only appeals to its peers, right? Right. It's informed from a very different place. Middle America has no interest. The suburbs have no interest right? in people from the inner city partying and being happy. They have an interest in that black exploitation story, the gangster thug. So... The Beasties had the biggest selling record. When I went to California around that time, everybody was playing Paul Revere. Right, right. The lowriders, the gangsters were pumping that shit. Now, in New York, we all knew them. Right. We'd seen them. We knew they weren't actually shooting anyone. We, yeah. we knew they were nice guys. Right. But out there, that shit fit their nihilistic kind of way of thinking. And if you listen to a lot of the early West Coast gangster records, six in the morning, police at my door, uh-huh. right? They're trying to sound like the beasties. <laughs> That's an interesting point, yeah. I can see that. Even to the nasal voice, which is a white boyism. Right, right. Six in the morning, right? So I was in the Bay Area. My brother moved out to Berkeley. I went to visit him. 
I'm on Shattuck and Telegraph, mm-hmm. and they're, they're pumping that shit there. Right. And if you listen to the the first, um, what's that dude, Sir Mix a Lot record? Right. That shit is Paul Revere. Oh yeah, he was definitely was uh, using that style for sure. My posse's on Broadway. Right. Beat. That was the biggest record outside of New York. Right, right. So once they realize that, it's a small step to take um, Ice Cube and Dre and these kind of guys and put them together and say, okay, let's sell some gangster shit from L.A. If you guys all dress like Easy e over there, because he's the real fucking thing. Right, right. right. And talk about the illest shit ever, shooting cops in their face. Hmm. We can make a ton of money. And to me, that's where I lost interest, bro. Right. Music has the power to influence you. Oh, greatly. Both positive or negative. Right, right. So, to this day, I listen to The Quiet Storm. I listen to The Spinners. I listen to, you know... I'm I'm still digging into the Isley Brothers catalog. I'm listening to all this. Dope. And I don't want to hear a 15-year-old kid telling me he's going to shoot me in my face. Because <laughs> guess what? I'm not a killer, but I've been where the killers are. Right. I survived that. I'm not trying to go back. No, no. After your Nothing journey, I wouldn't want to Nothing fly about that shit. Nothing fly about that shit. I've been upstate. They don't let you bring your gun there. (laughs) Right, right. You better know how to fight with your hands. These little skinny kids with their pants hanging off their ass. You better, you know, learn something new, constructive. (laughs) Because the gold teeth in your mouth, they'll pull them right out. Did you ever, you know, we're right about to wrap it up, but did you ever get in any fights in the yards when you were painting? Did you Graffiti? Yeah. Oh, fuck. Like That's real all scraps. we did. Right, right. That's all we did. We used to Over go... territory or? It, it was just, complicated, it, it was like part of the culture, man. Right. Older cats, it was like hazing rituals. Right. So we would get robbed. We called it vamping back then. Okay. You get vicked or vamped for your paint, your black book, your markers, whatever. If you were soft, they'd take your fucking sneakers, right. right? And if you had enough heart and passion, you would still come back, mm-hmm. right? A lot of dudes, the first time they got robbed and smacked up, they were real nice in their black books, but they stayed black book artists, mm-hmm. right? So because that had been done to us, it toughened us up, we did it to the next generation. There uh-huh. was no love. You didn't get easy props, right? So graffiti was a very violent sport. We used to arm ourselves to the teeth mm-hmm. to go to the yard. And in the 80s, it became even more violent because it became more crowded. There was sure. less room. So you didn't want <clears throat> dudes to come to your spot and I remember going with the FC TC5 IBM all them cats some FBA dudes they would go with no paint and just lie in waiting for dudes to come into the one tunnel right 
and take their pain. Wow. Yeah, just Vic them. Yeah, that's how all those great fucking whole cars got done with somebody else's paint. Oh, wow. How deep into the into the bowels of the city have you been? <laughs> all the way, like, I mean, what? Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 they're bowels. Now you're going to make it a fucking anal reference. Well, right? <laughs> the tunnels. I mean, I don't, yeah. the vena- you know, the vernacular. I'm I've trying walked to every inch, man. There's places that people to this day don't know about. Right, I'm sure. There's there's tunnels under Prospect Park that are abandoned that are we connected to Fort Hamilton with. There's a hatch, you know. Yeah, every square inch of this city. I've I know above ground and below ground. Funny story, when I first came back from upstate, this is like ninety six. Yeah. I'm coming from I might have been coming from Loud Records. I was coming from some job because I had my portfolio. It was summertime, and I was dressed all in white. I remember that I was going somewhere. I wanted to look fly, but it was summer. It was hot out. So I had a white Lacoste terry cloth bucket hat. Oh, shit. And all white to match, right? And they had a blackout. What year was that blackout? Oh, um, yeah, I remember this. Well, it was like... Was it 99 or something? 2000? Yeah. 99? Whatever. So the A train that I'm on going back home with my portfolio stops dead in the tunnel. And we were on. Next stop was going to be 14th Street, headed downtown, A train. Now, we don't know what's going on up above. Sure. It just... It's hot as hell because the air conditioner right. cut off. Right. It's packed. Rush hour. Yeah. Everybody's getting antsy. There's no announcements. There's no nothing. Long story short, I know those old trains well enough that I said, excuse me, will you get up? I flip up the seat. There's a lever, a manual lever. You throw, ping. And it opens the doors that's under the bench. <laughs> okay. okay. And I walked out with my white, all white on, into the tunnel, up through the escape hatch. There are grates on this. Now, what you got to understand, I came up right by FIT. Right. You know where that is? Where the A train runs underneath? It's downtown? Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, was, yeah. it was, next stop would have been 14th Street. Oh, okay, yes. So yeah. we're like 20-something. Okay, I see. Yeah, yeah, right? I know exactly what you're talking about. There's a hatch, but everyone, that day they let everyone walk home. They're walking towards the Brooklyn Bridge, right? Right. I'm trying to come out the hatch. People are walking above. Yeah, this is the sidewalk we're talking right. about. Right, big metal hatch in the sidewalk. Crowded. I pop out. <laughs> Dipped from head to toe in white, clean. <laughs> right. People are looking at me crazy. I started walking downtown. Wow. Join the throngs of people. Right. Now, my only frame of reference was the blackout of 77. Sure. Now, remember, I lived downtown by Fulton Street. Okay. I saw looting, riots, cars burning, you know, people running with torches. So wow. I'm expecting... <laughs> 
New Yorkers are gonna go mad. But it was pretty chill, and all the restaurants right. were giving away free shit before <laughs> it rotted. So right. the whole walk home, people are handing out ice cream and shit <laughs> before it melts. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, had a good time. But my knowledge of the subway systems, and there were people on the train suffering. Sure. Pregnant lady, someone with kids, and I was like, yo, just follow me. I I know how to get it. Nobody wanted to go. They were like, oh, the third rail. I said, well, if the third rail was live, the train would be moving, you know? There's point. no power. And then they go, oh, but there's rats down there. Right. Oh, rats all over New York. <laughs> like, right. Rats up there, too. You want right. to stay here? Fine. I tried to help folks. Yeah, interesting. Right. And they were scared to death to walk a few feet through the tunnel to the escape hatch. Right. But being that I have this... I'm, I'm more familiar down there than I am above ground sometimes, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like do you have to have a certain level of fearlessness to, like, be... to have done a lot of that shit, right? Or just, just not give a fuck You gotta understand, we were kids. Right. So when I was a kid, I went to Bloomington, Indiana, mm-hmm. where my father had some family. Okay. It was a university town. Sure. They shot a movie there about the bicycle kid uh, breaking away. Right. Oh, right, right, right. So what they do there is they dive into quarries. Uh-huh. They jump off a cliff. It's a sheer. The quarry is cut like a giant fucking, you know, and you got to be fearless. It's right. like cliff diving. You can hit a rock and fucking die. You know right. what I mean? They're swinging. So that's what they do for an adrenaline rush. For kids, that's fun, right? It's in our nature because we're, we're, we have a fight or flight. Uh, you know, from the days when jaguars were jumping out of trees, natural predators, right? right? So we build up an excess of this adrenaline that we've now mastered the fucking planet. We don't have any natural predators, right? Right, right. So this unnatural state of being, you got all this energy. So kids want to do fearless things. And, you know, if, if... if you live in the country, it might be bungee jumping or skydiving or whatever. Yeah. Living in New York City, it was like, you know, you rode on the back of the fucking <laughs> subway train elevated. You, you rode on the project elevators on the top. On top of them, right. right. That's just our fucking roller coaster. Right, right. Well, I got to tell you, man, I mean, it's... Um I love the stories, and uh, I think it's an important conversation to share with people because, you know, a lot of people don't know who you are or don't know the stories, you know? Cool. Like, it's a... Dis- I like being able to walk down the street and nobody bothers me. Right, right. And now I got an Instagram, like, since I decided I don't want to be a criminal anymore, I don't hide my face, right? <laughs> right. So I show my artwork, and sometimes I talk about my food I take a picture sure. of my dinner I cooked or whatever so people see me in the street now and they stop me sometimes yo Keo I'm like who the fuck are you and at first I'm on defensive cause that's that old right. that fight or flight shit that I was sure. talking about right. Keo what the fuck do you write you know what I mean that was a challenge right. who you and they're like yo I follow you on Instagram, man. You're such an inspiration. 
And I'm like, oh, yeah, people know me. Yeah, it's a new day. I can't imagine if I would have made a fucking... I, I could have been the first white rapper, right? I could have recorded before the Beasties. Right. How would my life be different? Would I be able to walk to the end train right now <laughs> and go home? I, I mean, maybe some that. of them dudes, like, you know, it's been so long, they don't even get recognized. Like, <laughs> It's very true. And there's some value to have done what you've done and not, and not uh, you know, the recognition sometimes is a burden, you know. So i tell you a story. You know Mark LaBelle? Yeah, Mark LaBelle. He used to write RB from the Lower East Side, was friends with my ex. Uh-huh. So he was like Eminem's road manager. Okay. So when Eminem first blew up, in fact, it was the Platinum Party. Okay. For when his first album hit Platinum. I went and it was a little club on the west side. Over there by Carmine and Leroy, you know where the pool is. It's not the you know, I think it's not the tunnel. No, 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 no. Downtown. Oh, okay. Off of like oh, six hours. Is it Wetlands? Nah, it's no. one of them tiny little clubs where you got to go down the stairs. It's on the corner. Anyway, okay. A, a nowhere club. Right, gotcha. I'm in the bathroom now. It's a small club, small mm-hmm. bathroom. There's like five urinals. Nobody's in the bathroom. All right. So I pick my urinal. Now, dude comes. And picks the one next to me, which to me is always a little odd. Right. Slightly uncomfortable. But I'm trying to watch my peripheral, like a proper, you know, urinal etiquette. I'm not <laughs> paying him any mind. Right. And then I sense there's a dude right behind me. Okay. And I'm like, what the fuck? Now my spidey sense is tingling. I'm going to get right. jumped in this bathroom or something. I got beef. So I look. And it's a huge, Rosie Greer-sized motherfucker, like football linebacker. Okay. The dude at the urinal next to me was Eminem. Hmm. He could not go pee without this giant security dude standing right behind him. I don't ever want to be that famous where I can't go to the bathroom without a dude on my ass. Yeah. He actually wound up getting thrown out of his own platinum release party. Really? Night. Yeah. yeah. Security like carried him out like this. For Wyland or just it was just like too, he just needed to Wyland. get out? Right. Wyland. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I hope he's doing better. But Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> that was my only Eminem experience. That's an interesting one. And I yeah. wonder if he realized who he was standing next to in the moment. Probably not. But... If he did, he would have moved down to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. Thank man. you, bro. Yeah, definitely, man. It's been a peace. pleasure, man. Peace, peace. Oh, man, that was incredible. Uh, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did listening to it and re listening to it when I was uh, setting this up. Um, oh, my God. Uh, shouts to Lord Scotch, Keo. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, to all the listeners out there, thank you guys so much for helping us at the Houses Podcast get to 75 episodes. It's a big deal. We did it. Good looking out. Shout out to all the subscribers. Thank you so much for doing it. 
please, if this is your first time listening, feel free to subscribe. Let's get on down. You know, it's fun. This is a fun podcast. It's very different from a lot of the other ones out there. You know what I'm saying? It's we come from a slightly different angle. And uh, I hope that you guys dig it and kind of catch the vibe of where I'm coming from with it. Um, And yeah, damn. I mean, I couldn't have thought of a better way to, to ring in such a a great um, benchmark here on the podcast. Every episode is edited and engineered by CJ Stewart. Again, shouts to Controller7 on the help out for a bit on this one. And um, go peep out Keo's website, keoart.com, and subscribe again to the House List podcast. SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube. Um... Let's see, what am I going to get into? I want to I want to drop a beat. I want to put something out. So since I know Dude through MF Doom and Special Herbs, at least that's how I was introduced to him, to my, recogle- my recollection, uh, I want to drop a beat. I'm, I think I'm going to do two off of Special Herbs, the very first one. And I'm actually pulling this off of the original CDR master, that Doom mailed me when we first did this record, 2000, 2001, on Female Fun Records. And I remember when we were talking, when me and Doom were coming up with this project, um, way back then, because uh, we would basically have these like long phone conversations to figure out like uh, what this was when I originally pitched him on it. And also shout out to DJ Fisher, who was the one that originally connected us to when that uh, happened and and enabled me to be able to pitch them on this thing so there's an interlude on Operation Doomsday which is a big tie into this conversation clearly that when I first heard it back in the day off the wax I uh, was like oh my god this sounds like a KMD song um, it was called Hands of Doom I think was a skit on it and of course uh, MF Doom is a master skit creator a master sampler like uh, and I even told when I was talking to Devin Horowitz, who we we did the podcast, you know, some episodes back from Nature Sounds. Shout out to Devin. It was a great conversation. You know, I always wish somehow that Doom would do an album that's just all skits, just all sample collage based stuff. And because of his ear so tuned in in such a finite way that it would be so ill. It would be so crazy. Um so yo, if you're listening to this Doom, not only do you know why, you know I want to talk to you on the podcast, but try and do that, man. I think a lot of people would be bugged out on that. So anyway, let's drop this beat right now because this is this, that's how that happened in, in, for Special Herbs. Pulled off the original Master CD-R, and uh, then I might flip into another one just right off that real quick because it's the 75th episode. Lord Scotch was the guest, and I wouldn't know him if it wasn't for Doom. So let's, you know, play a couple of little quick joints here real quick. All right, y'all. Peace. Thanks so much again. Catch you on the next one. Let's go. Mm-hmm.